We are here uh, for our second in this series of conversations uh, about overcoming racism, taking a, uh, a sharp integral look at the major challenges that we have around race and racism in this country. Um, you know, we did our first show almost a month ago. It was about three or four weeks ago. And um, we got a lot of really great feedback from that show, which was really, really cool to see. And it generated a lot of conversation in some of these integral circles that we're all part of. Um, a lot of that feedback was from people who were, I think, just generally grateful for the discussion uh, and for our willingness to kind of shine a more integral light on this particular set of challenges. Um, and then there was sort of some other feedback that came through, which was a bit more critical, um, which is always invited, of course. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that, you know, in that show, we were expressing some perspectives and some views that really did have some degree of alignment with elements of the, what we'll call just sort of the green anti-racism project that's out there, uh, which is something that's really emerged from the tenets of a theoretical framework known as critical race theory, uh, which I'm hoping we'll, we'll be able to talk a little bit more about today. But we even use some of the same terms that is being used in those anti-racism circles, including the, the phrase anti-racism, uh, which I think made a lot of people sort of wonder you know, what exactly is it about an integral approach that differs from some of these other, you know, kind of more flatland efforts to eliminate racism, um, a lot of which seem to be really just as absolutistic as the sort of the racial attitudes that they're trying to overcome. Um, and Diane, when you did your talk uh, with Ken about your book, uh, Compassionate Conversations, um, you know, Ken, I think, kind of really nailed it. He was, you guys were talking about the, the problem with the phrase systemic racism. And what Ken said is that the people who say it doesn't exist mm -hmm. and the people who say that it's absolutely everywhere are, they're both right. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes to healing sort of the, the historical and the intergenerational traumas that we've inherited from amber racism, the modern orange project was basically to eliminate discriminatory policies and practices from the lower right quadrant sort of getting rid of institutional racism as much as, as they possibly could. And major progress was earned because of that. Yeah, so basically what Corey's talking about everybody is the mainly legislation, anti-discrimination uh, policy, you know, setting up uh, anti-discrimination division in the, in the federal government, kind of real measurables in the right-hand quadrants that actually happened because of the civil rights movement. That's right. and and. Astonishingly, most of these forms of institutional racism, I mean, we still have some residue that we're taking care of right now, but most of these were actually eliminated within a single generation, um, which I think is, is astounding and is, uh, you know, definitely a, the sort of progress that we want to be tracking. But for, I think, the postmodern green project, uh, that project really remains kind of incomplete, which is dealing with racism in the lower left quadrant. Um, and likely the postmodernists can't complete this project. They can't solve this problem without integral guidance, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the reasons why um, we want to do this show together. Um, so I think, you know, some of the things that we hope to achieve today um, is, is, is gaining just a little bit more clarity when it comes to terms like anti-racism or systemic racism, uh, which will hopefully allow us to appreciate, again, where progress has been made, how that progress was achieved, where we still have work to do, and what kinds of work, what kinds of interventions are going to be required for that. Um, and I think it's sort of the larger question that people are asking is, is it possible to support the larger goals of Black Lives Matter without buying into critical race theory? I think 
yes, that's, that's, that's kind of my sense. Yes, I, I, I think so. Um, I think there's a natural integral anti-fragility that actually kind of thrives in chaotic times like these um, because it sort of allows us to be pro-punk and pro-establishment at the same time, you know? Um, so I think this is, I just wanted to kind of generally set the table for the conversation we're about to have. Uh, I really look forward to hearing what you guys have to say about this. And Diane, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Sounds great. Thank you, Corey. And I just also want to really uh, welcome Greg Thomas and Mark Palmer to, to the Integral Justice Warrior podcast. And both are, are friends and colleagues and like everyone in the Integral community, really very subtle and nuanced thinkers and people whose minds and whose hearts I deeply appreciate and admire. And I'm, I'm really just very pleased that you guys are willing to take time out of your day to talk with us. And so as a, you know, I wanna, one of the things that we talk about in, in uh, integral circles is our cosmic address. And so I wanna be, be aware, and this is, you know, something that pluralism brings online is kind of some actual awareness of where we're situated in in the world and in our belief systems and in our value sets and in our culture and those kinds of things. Um, so as a white woman, I wanna say that my, my orientation to this conversation comes mainly out of what I believe um, that, that there are kind of two streams for me. One stream is simply the, the impulse towards equality and fairness that kind of is part of who I am. And then also a lot of work that I did in my 20s and 30s around issues of racial equality and equity diversity, those kinds of things. And then just being a mediator. So for me, it's mediation. I'm not, I'm not a theorist. I'm not an academic. I'm not an activist. I'm a mediator. And so really being able to have very um, real and robust conversations, regardless of how much experience we have in the conversation. Some people are so sophisticated and nuanced. And, and as you said, Corey, steeped in theory. And then others of us are just kind of wading in. And I think one of the beautiful things that's happening right now is simply that the mainstream of white America is suddenly willing to take on a perspective that they haven't really taken on before. And I would suggest that within the integral community um, that sometimes people haven't thought as much about issues related to our evolution as an American culture, how we integrate the history of slavery and what the challenges and opportunities are. So that I just wanted to say that about myself because I, I, not from an, uh, just knowing that it makes a difference how we engage these conversations where we're coming from. So I wanna turn it over to Greg and Mark. You guys wanna position yourselves in this conversation in terms of what matters to you, I guess. Um, sure. Um, thank you both uh, Corey and Di for inviting me uh, and Mark, my colleague and friend. Um, in terms of situating myself, it's very interesting to start from that place because uh, from all appearances, I'm a, I'm a, a black male, right? So, um, but I try to increase or add some nuance by saying uh, black American male who is also a professional writer. Um, I'm an intellectual, I'm an entrepreneur so those are all aspects that really define who I am and what my orientation is. In addition, I'm an integralist. I'm someone who has studied you know, fairly deeply integral theory, integral meta theory. 
uh, and related theories such as spirodynamics, metamodernism. Um, so, and last but certainly not least, this is one of several bookshelves that I have in my home. Um, this is my Ellison, Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, Blues Idiom Philosophy bookshelf. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and like a shrine. So, yeah, yeah, it does. It does. It's, it's next to kind of an Asian shrine. There. So, yeah. Um, so I'm coming from all those, those places and I'll just leave it there so my colleague Mark can position himself. Thanks, Greg. Thank you all for having us. Um, this is exciting and um, it's amazing to be at a time where we can do this, to have this kind of conversation and, and really my desire and my interest in having this conversation is to, I think for my own, my own part is to ensure that more voices um, are able to come to the table and help us properly define this very pivotal uh, time in our evolution as a, as a country, as a world, uh, and that we bring the necessary rigor and work and the allowance of different perspectives uh, to this thing um, and, and to ensure that it doesn't devolve into just sort of this linear uh, transactional, um, just circular uh, triangle of, of power back and forth. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think as human beings, we have a tendency, we have mob tendencies, right? The, the proclivity to use pitchforks and, and torches is, is well ingrained in our DNA. And so we bring this approach to everything, right? Um, when we find out inequalities, uh, you know, even, even at a you know, more ma micro level, uh, the first thing is that we look for blood. Uh, so I think that there's an opportunity to have a, a better conversation and also to invite more voices so that we can further humanize what we're doing. Because mm -hmm. I think in the end, this is all going to uh, hinge the success. Whatever that means is going to hinge on our ability to humanize these things and to get out of uh, compartmentalizing each other into subhuman or dehumanized groups. Thank you, Mark, and thanks, Greg. It's, uh, I. I'm so curious about that, uh, all those books behind you, Greg, in terms of <laughs> how you're informed by music and those black intellectuals. Um, at some point, I'd like to be able to, as we did in the first mm -hmm. conversation, share some music um, to give a feeling tone for not only this conversation, but where I think we've come in the month preceding the first one or succeeding the first one, after the first one. So um, just wanna you know, say whenever we can do that, I definitely would appreciate that. Let's, you wanna do it now? And we yeah, can use this to, to make this transition? Yeah. Let's do it now. Let's People really it. loved it. They loved that. Okay. Let's do it. Yep. Yeah. Go for it, Greg. Let's just remember to share your audio. Okay, we will do. Okay. So actually the very first thing I wanna do is bring up a slide, okay? Um, this is to position the actual uh, music that we're going to hear. And, okay, so let me make this big. Okay, so can everyone see that? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so this is actually a slide that uh, I used along with uh, my wife and partner, Jewel, in a presentation we did for Rebel Wisdom, their festival, um, about a month and a half ago. And this is, before we played a musical example, what we did was show the various roles in a jazz ensemble. So you've got the bass, the drums, the piano, they form the rhythm section. The bass and the drums, they're in charge of that swing rhythm, which is the fundamental rhythm of jazz. Here, the trumpet represents that lead instrument, um, usually out front. It could be a, a trumpet, a sax, a trombone. So what you're going to hear is another cut from Wynton Marsalis. The first conversation we heard his version of Melancholia by Duke Ellington. And that was from Winton's Think of One recording. This, and that was like in 1985 or something like that. Well, 10 years later, he recorded an album dedicated to Charles Schultz's uh, Peanuts, you know, the Peanuts uh, cartoon and uh, comics. And he called it Joe's Cool Blues. And there's a song on there that unlike the very first song we heard, which was very, it was a ballad. It was, you know, it had elements of melancholy, mournfulness, hope, but it was just such a strong feeling on that level. This, on the other hand, I think, for me at least, typifies in the last month, the velocity of conversation, of change, of demonstrations and protest nationally and internationally. And so I want to share from that context, but also share because I think it can frame a feeling tone for our conversation. Um, Winton in an interview once said that excellence is a form of protest. And what you're going to hear is mastery and excellence on a very high level coming from the jazz experience, which comes out of the Black American experience, which comes out of the American experience. And what I want you to particularly pay attention to for this song called Buggy Ride is how the bass holds down the fundamental rhythm throughout. He, he plays a note on every beat. Um, it is similar to uh, for Einstein's theory of re relativity where light is um, the, the speed of light is the constant around which the relativity froze. The same things happen happens here. So first you'll hear the band come in, they're playing in unison. Then they stop. It's called a break. Winton takes a brief solo and then they came come in with another melodic phrase and it happens until they actually go into the solo period where the bass is walking fast 4-4, the drums is with the bass doing uh, very fast uh, uh, rhythmic figures. The piano is comping, which means accompanying or complimenting and Winton is soloing. This is what I want you to particularly know. The bass is the constant holding down the rhythm. The next degree of freedom is experienced by the drums who is responding to what's going on. The next degree of freedom is the piano, where the piano is interspersing notes and chords 
you know, not according to every beat, like the bass is, more freely, but in, co in collaboration. And then finally, Winton with a performance that actually won a Grammy Award for Best Jazz Solo. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. Right. And brace yourself, buggy ride.
Beautiful. It was like a flurry. Yes. Which is what we've been experiencing socially. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love it, Greg. Thank you for sharing that. Um, if, I, if I was asked to share a song, it'd probably be like Run the Jewels or something like that. So I, think, I, I thank you for classing it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think that... There's some uh, virtuoso playing in there. Virtuoso, Incredible. for sure. So yeah. I think when we engage in these conversations, that if we are aspiring to and claiming a level of understanding of reality from all these various perspectives, I think it's incumbent upon us to bring as much mastery and virtuosity to the conversation as possible. So I, that is certainly my intent. And I know all of you got chops, as we say in Jed, you got chops. So let's, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. All right, great. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna start with just an opening bid and see how you wanna to respond to this. So one of the things that I think has been the experience of people who work in social justice and particularly uh, in relationship to say the, the status of the black community in, in culture is that the work on individual racism is not sufficient. The idea that if we, we examine ourselves and our biases and we pass legislation and we work towards that, that you know, there, there's some result but that we still have disparities that are not acceptable. We have a massive gap in terms of just the, the annual income between black families and white families. We have massive overrepresentation within our um, criminal justice system, including mass incarceration, education. We still find people of color disadvantaged. And so the, the emergence, as I understand it, of the idea of institutional racism emerged in the late 60s, and then it's been, it's been expanded to include systemic racism. So I really want to make it clear to the people who haven't, who are listening, who haven't given a lot of their time and energy to learning about these issues, that systemic racism points to this. So for instance, I was, I helped to facilitate the early meeting, meetings of the Racial and Ethnic Fairness Task Force in Utah. That was 20 years ago. My husband was the chief justice of the, our Supreme Court. Tyrone Medley was a district judge, African-American, and also Ed, Ed Thorne. Good friends, good colleagues, um, very accomplished people. Ed Thorne was a Pima Indian and is a Pima Indian. And basically, we were doing that work 20 years ago because of the disproportionate number of people of color in a state in which the population I think of black people at the time was probably around 2% and maybe Latino or Latinx people, 11%, but the overrepresentation was just extraordinary. And what, what we found is that at every point where there's a decision from stops all the way to parole, the people of color are overrepresented. And that, that there may be all kinds of um, influences in terms of culture, value, or lower left, as you said, Corey, that's influencing that. But the system itself, the criminal justice system to be accountable to itself, you know, and in, in our case for Michael Zimmerman to be accountable to his role, how can we not stop and look at that issue? And that basically, um, and I can talk more about that later if it interests people, but that basically the institution of the courts combined with the institution of law enforcement, combined with the institution of prisons, basically forms this systemic quality that then influences 
housing and influences education, education influences healthcare and healthcare. And so then we have this systemic kind of problem that is really much, much more difficult to address. So I just want to put that out there for our listeners who may not understand this very well. And, you know, in some ways, the conclusion of that is the entire system from a very extreme perspective needs to be dismantled. Mm -hmm. And so the, the sort of embeddedness of it requires an extreme response. So I, I think Mark and Greg, I'd just like to let you guys have a minute to respond to that view, if you don't mind. And Corey, of course, whenever you feel you want to chime in. But I'm just curious, because so much emphasis right now is on this white supremacy, on systemic racism, and, and, and somehow either completely overhauling the system because it's rotten to the core or dismantling it altogether. What are your thoughts about that, you guys? Yeah, I'll chime in first, guys. Um, you know, Di, the, some of the first things that start to come that bubble up for me around this have to do with as a good step one properly defining these terms with as much and again I mentioned this before I think as much dynamic rigor as we can possibly muster okay. because if we don't first properly define these things and I think you see this happening in a broader um, conventional conversation in the conventional conversation what i see is an oversimplification and not defining what some of these things mean and so we're not even having a aligned conversation so a, a critical first step that i see that we have to get right if we're actually going to have a conversation is properly defining what these things mean in a very aligned way and, and some of that means also key to this is that there's not one definition, right? And I think this is where the awkward framework as a heuristic can come in. And there's this sort of sense of both and. In other words, there are many definitions that we can draw from and they will all give us different insights about different aspects of what this, what seems to be an amorphous uh, a kind of reality that we're responding to, because as it is, we're not properly set up to respond to what's happening. So it appears that things that we're responding to can seem sort of phantom on one end. So you have people trying to say, well, empirically, these things just don't exist from an empirical standpoint. But then we're looking at it intersubjectively and saying, well, but there are these conditioned cultural uh, uh, values and worldviews and perceptions that do still persist in terms of the way people are, you know, sense-making process and meaning-making, those things still persist. Um, so there are lots of different ways to define what systemic racism is, um, what racism is from an institutional standpoint, from a policy standpoint, um, you know. And when I look at it, I almost want to say systematic in the sense that a lot of the original systems that were set up in this country's in the origin, in the, in the inception, um, in a, a racial component being a very big piece of that, uh, they're exclusionary to the core. In other words, the systems themselves, and from a certain definition, the system is what it does. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that vein, the systems are exclusionary and the patterns persist. The exclusionary patterns, patterns persist. And so there's an opportunity to, as we begin to unpack that, uh, look at our own 
psycho-generational cultural conditioning and meaning-making process as a system, a system that we pass on generationally, like lineage-wise, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a racialized context there. And then in the institutions themselves, from slavery to Jim Crow and so forth, and redlining and redistricting. And, and a lot of times, in, in much more subtle ways, we talked earlier about uh, you know, some of the contributions that the, you know, the world-centric orange way of thinking, which, which for the first time looks at universal formalism and reason and so forth, that we've made some strides there. And, mm -hmm. and I think- Yeah, all, even the concept of equality in some ways comes with, with the enlightenment. It, it's mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I would call that a, a first generation uh, level of reason influenced uh, concepts, universal concepts like equality and justice and so forth. But there are also more nuanced generations that we have to go down a rabbit hole to look. And I think, as, I, as again I mentioned, something like Aquil as a heuristic can start to illuminate a uh, deeper tools and more sophisticated tools at really getting around this. What's the process of meaning making look like? What are some of the subtleties of policy? How does the policy, how does the energy of a policy in terms of a system, an actual institutional system, play itself out? Because that's going to tell us a lot about then when you add a racial component to that, you see the rever reverberation. So we're still in some sense seeing the pattern of, right. of hundreds of years of a systematic pattern going in. So again, for me, the step one is we have to properly define that and we have to continually do that. That's not going to stop. Um, but that starts the conversation. I think that's the base of the conversation. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. So what I like to do is just make a quick statement, then show yet another graphic that I think will be helpful along the same lines that Mark is talking about in terms of defining terms. Um, I think that from, again, I'm a writer, I'm an intellectual. I think that's very important to bring nuance to our terminology. So yes, even when we define, to define means to put into a set form, but we know that words are slippery and meaning is slippery and there are levels of meaning and all of that. I'm sure that my green postmodern pluralistic friends would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in, so in that sense, I would say that in addition to using the term like systemic racism, which is a trigger for so many, mm -hmm. I think we need to add terms like, well, systemic bias, systemic injustice, you know, not to, to uh, go away from whether or not that's actually real from a systemic racism perspective, but to actually give a larger frame, because if you talk about systemic injustice, then it's not just talking about black folks. If you talk about systemic bias, you're not just talking about black folks. Mm -hmm. So the more inclusive we can be in terms of how we frame these things to include black folks who, in terms of the racial hierarchy, was at the low end of that totem pole, and also include others, the more you position yourself for embrace by a wider number of people. And is that what you would say, Greg, to an activist who says to you, this is unapologetically black? 
and it needs to be focused on the lives and the reality of black folks. What would you say to those folks? I would say, thank you. I would say that oftentimes, um, you know, the concerns of my particular ethnic and cultural group, tribe, um, culture, um, is, hasn't been considered. Um, Ralph Ellison, <laughs> Ralph Ellison talked about Gulliver's Travels and he talked about the giant being on the ground, you know, tied up and everyone's tying him up. And he said that that's like the Negro is like the, the giant that's been tied up and everything is revolving around the Negro in one way or the other, but folks are trying to avoid it, you know, deny it or just not deal with it at all. And it's been here, we've been here, uh, and our issues and concerns have been here as well as our contributions have been here. So I'm, I'd say, first of all, thank you for focusing on, on us uh, as American citizens. And I'd say, yes, and as we say in improv, improv comedy and in jazz, yes, and there are others who we have to consider also in our embrace, okay? So there's that. Um, now let me show this diagram, which I think, I hope that it will add some uh, further clarity to at least where I'm coming from. Okay, so you see this uh, graphic here? At the bottom we have, last time I talked about the concept of race itself. So once you have a concept of race, which separates human beings based on their phenotypic characteristics, their outer characteristics, then you basically have a process of racialization into say black, white, Asian, okay? Then you go up from here and you've got Hispanics, Native Hawaiian, American Indian or Native American, Alaskan Native, and you've got extremes of, of Racialized, racialized groups that go into either being like a confederate orientation or say black nationalism or black lives matter because their <laughs> their icon is a fist and this this came out before black lives movement um, black lives matter then you see all of these different issues that come up some of which have already been mentioned okay all based on this racial worldview. You notice how the person is like half black, half white. This racial worldview is like the mortar that gets into all of these different areas. The only thing about this graphic that's not accurate in my estimation is that it's showing these on the same level. This was a hierarchy with black on the bottom and white on top, which then gets to concepts of white supremacy, white superiority, white privilege, okay? But I think that something like this can help people. If you look at this as the mortar that is going in all of these different areas, that it gives some, some people a concrete image to look at some of these systemic forces. So I would just, you know, bring that to the table. You start with race as a concept, then racialization, breaking folks up into these different racial groups and related 
And then you have these various issues and disparities, all based in the racial worldview being uh, put into pretty much everything, okay? Without using the term systemic racism though, see? So that's, that's what I would add just as a starting place. Yeah, you know, as we were um, preparing for this, this, this talk, uh, Greg, you had sent a video from uh, with a really, really bright guy who I think is just um, intrinsically an integral thinker, uh, Coleman Hughes. And this was an interview he was giving where he was talking about systemic racism. And, you know, I get, I get such a great hit from this guy. I mean, he's, he's, he's thinking about these, I think, from a post-green point of view. I don't think he has an integral map, and I think an integral map would probably help sort of clean up some of his discernments. But um, I really get the sense that he's, he's criticizing what he's seeing from a post-green point of view, which is, which is important because a lot of those criticisms are coming from pre-green. Right. And they only have so much utility based on that. But in this video, one of the things he was talking about is like, you know, this this question of systemic racism. He goes, I, I try to find this systemic racism and I don't know where to locate it, you know, because he basically is looking at this in terms of a bit of a binary. He goes, OK, we've got individual racism over here. Right. And my sense is that's never going to go away. And that's a pretty important developmental perspective, I think, to add to this, that all people are going to grow through an ethnocentric stage. And at that ethnocentric stage, they're going to develop an identity and a self-concept that is clearly differentiated from other people and other groups. That's just sort of a natural part of, of our psychology. So he accepts that that is sort of a reality that we just kind of have to find a way to uh, work around or work with or or what have you. And then he points to institutional racism. And he says what we were saying earlier, most of that, you know, again, there's still some residue. Supreme Court only recently decided that no, you can't fire gay people just because they're gay. Right. So, I mean, there's a couple kinks that we're still working out here. But by and large, we took care of that part. There's not a whole lot. There's not a lot of laws on the books that says, hey, treat those people differently than those people. And yet people are being treated differently from other people. So where does that come from? And Coleman is sort of talking about like, I just don't know where to locate this. If it's not individual racism and it's not institutional racism, it's a phantom. And I think that a more integral reading would be to actually say, well, no, it's institution or I'm sorry, systemic racism is still a reality. But in terms of where to locate it, we have to point to the lower left quadrant which of course is postmodern. I mean, that's, that's the postmodern bag right there is the lower left quadrant, right? So we start to look at some of the interventions that are required in order to work with this in the lower left. And I think that what we're seeing from the anti-racist kind of project is a combination of probably some fairly healthy interventions, right? Things like, uh, Making subject out of making object out of your 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 various subjects, your intersubjective biases and your hey, Corey, subjectively me, inherited biases. Yeah. Just let me interrupt you for a second. So help me understand because this is a big topic. So let's take some time with this, and I want to point to also what Tim Lilenthal has put into the chat. But help me understand. I understand that the the anti-racist policies or anti-discriminatory policies, the legislation. Um, those kinds of things in the lower right are, not, are insufficient. I also understand that implicit bias and our individual, as well as our collective biases and ethnocentrism with each other contributes. 
but but there, you know, our work in the Racial and Ethnic Fairness, Fairness Task Force, we did come up with a lot of interventions in the lower right. Mm -hmm. It isn't simply the lower left. I just want to make sure you and I are on the same page. Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. of course. Yeah, I, I think the point I'm making is that the work needs to be done in both areas. And we've seen more work accomplished in one of those dimensions than we have the other, right? That was sort of the, the modern victory when it came to dealing with the scar tissue from amber racism and, and institutions of slavery. So now we're at the point where we're like, okay, so if this, if the problem of systemic racism is something that pretty much lives in the lower left, obviously has an effect in the lower right, right? We see results, we see outcomes uh, that are obviously inequitable and that, you know, can result from bias. That doesn't mean that all inequities are the result of bias, but all biases do result in inequities. And we can see how a cultural bias can show up in the upper left, right? This can give people permission, for example, to hold on to uh, views that, you know, maybe a generation ago were, were getting kind of shamed out of culture. So I think there is a combination of sort of healthy approaches and unhealthy approaches. And those, those healthy approaches usually involve things like, like I was saying, making an object out of these various kind of hidden insidious subjects that we've just sort of taken for granted. And I think that's where the language around things like privilege comes from. And I support that. I think that's very healthy as long as we remember, right, that these kinds of perspectives require a certain perspectival dexterity right. that only comes online in, in later that's stages right. of development. Right. We can't expect, for example, you know, our, our police officers to have access to this level of perspectival dexterity. So we have to work around that. We have to find an anti-fragile sort of way to work with that understanding that not everyone has these tools and resources at their disposal. And then there's a number of unhealthy. Okay, so let's take a break for a second. Yeah. Let's just hear what these guys have to say in sure. response to what you're asserting. What do you think you guys about what Corey's saying? Well, I, I certainly appreciate that perspective. I appreciate the mention of Coleman Hughes. Um, it's a young man who I happen to know through his father, who is a client of mine. Um, and who I've actually seen perform at the Jazz Standard in New York. He's an excellent jazz trombonist. Is he really? Yes, he's also a hip hop artist. Mm -hmm. Coleman Hughes, yes. Yes, know. Coleman, yes, he is. And oh. so, what, just to speak about him for a second, because I think there are a lot of people understandably attracted to Coleman because he's clear, he's rational, he looks at evidence. So he's obviously integrated, uh, you know, what we call orange, modern values. Um, he wants to be empirical. He's not ideologically driven on one side or the other based on his empirical evidence and also experiential evidence. He will say when he thinks there's some type of existing continuation of racism, for example. Mm -hmm. He's very nuanced and to be so nuanced and so young is exciting for me, um, someone that's more than twice his age to see and it gives me a lot of hope. Um, so I wanna say that about Coleman, uh, first of all. Um, and I think in time, to kind of piggyback on what you said, Corey, I think in time, he will add on some of these different perspectives that we're talking about from both a, a philosophical, which he was a major in philosophy at Columbia. Mm. So at some point he'll be aware, become aware of integral meta theory and take a look into it from a philosophical perspective. And then 
the legacy of Ellison and Murray, which from a blues idiom jazz perspective, I mean, he plays what they describe. <laughs> so, He's also super young. Yeah. I mean, He's yeah. like 23, right? He's yes. Like a very young man. Yes, he is. So I, I, I really dig him a lot. So I won't say that. Um, otherwise, hmm. Um, I guess the nuance that we're trying to bring to this, some people, if they're activists, they're like, you know, this is a lot of, you know, intellectual stuff. And matter of fact, to be a little crude here, intellectual masturbation. You know, it's like, you know, what good is this? We need to change this, damn it. I understand that impulse. But change occurs not only in one quadrant, it not only occurs in the legal institutional structures, it needs to change on the group, cultural or worldview or shared values level that you talked about, Corey. And as we said in the first conversation, it needs to happen in the individual subjective place, as well as the individual objective or upper right place where people hold so much within themselves regarding race, trauma, grief, uh, guilt, um, avoidance, repression, all these kind of things that should be and must be dealt with. One of the things that I um, appreciate about John McWhorter, who's another person that I think some integralists are attracted to. Matter of fact, I know they're attracted to as an integral thinker without using the scaffolding of the terminology. One of the things that I think, if I ever have a chance to talk with him, which I hope to uh, publicly, is I would say to him that I think he downplays a bit too much the subjective uh, importance of the constructs that we deal with, one, but also the need for people to go through a process of work on trauma. This book here is what I referenced last time. This mm -hmm. book is really excellent in terms of somatic work that people need to do uh, to work through uh, a lot of the trauma that we've had. Mm -hmm. So whether it's how we define these terms and describe the dynamics and the phenomenon, um, whether it's we are parsing it into the various quadrants of reality that tetra arise, and I hope you speak to that, Dai, um, some. Mm -hmm. These are very valuable. Action in the world takes place, takes place based on thoughts, frameworks, worldviews, passionate emotions, belief systems, all of these things play into the actual way we engage in the world. So we're not just playing word games here. All of these things are crucially important, which is why I add to the discourse by saying things like, when we talk about white supremacy, I don't just say most of the time white supremacy. One, I don't believe in white supremacy. I don't believe white folks are supreme. So I, I don't just say it like it is for one. Uh, two, <laughs> <laughs> Mark like that. Mark, <laughs> that that lit you up, bro. That lit you up. <laughs> so I don't just say it like you know. Uh, so that's one thing. But also, 
I am studied enough to know that there are different ways of deconstructing the term so that we can reconstruct something else. So my mentor, Albert Murray, he calls it the folklore of white supremacy. It's folklore. It, relate, it automatically relates it to that ethnocentric place, right? Then you have, as I pulled out, and I'll pull out again, I think, um, the book I just had by Resma. Uh, mm -hmm. He talks about white body supremacy, that our ideal of physical beauty was based on white bodies. So he... he, he Until Beyonce came along. <laughs> Let's be clear. Oh, oh, I could give you a whole lot more before Beyonce. <laughs> I know, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but but she you. rules now, Queen Bay. Oh, you know? oh yeah. So, um, That's yeah. Right. so, so you see what I'm saying? So, yeah, so, so these are nuances. I like to also say when I talk about white and black as racial signifiers, I sometimes say nominally white, nominally black in name, because we as human beings are deeper than just the way we look on the outside, our racial identification, uh, right. all of that. We, but we're so much deeper than that. So I think we have to find ways of kind of deconstructing these terms mm -hmm. that then reconstruct on top of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love what you just said there, Greg. You, uh, the way you wrap that up about deconstructing, really blowing up the, the semantic um, residue of, of these sort of entrenched ideas, ethnocentric, deeply ethnocentric ideas, and pushing beyond that and redefining what some of these things look like um, in, in a broader context, in a, in a more sophisticated context now. Um, and that takes work. I mean, look, it's easy to, easy stancing, I think, is still rampant because, again, I think as human beings, we're still, uh, we still carry a lot of authoritarian DNA mm -hmm. in the way we go about things. We see this in, you know, there's the, there's the, the noble intent toward justice, inequality, and all of these things that, you know, post-enlightenment and post-modernity that erupted into modernity and post-modernity. All those things have a very noble and sincere intent but the way we deal with the, from an emotional tenor sort of state, from a psycho-emotional place, is still much more ancient than that. Um, and I think we bring that to bear. I think that in our, uh, in our attempt to bring justice and deal with the trauma, the psycho-evolutionary trauma, we are still drawing on the very methods that put oppression in place. We're, right. meet, we're meeting oppression energy with oppression energy. Right. And we're it sometimes can feel very coercive, for sure. A a absolutely. Um, you know, as I like to say from the movie Gladiator, Rome is the mob. And the, the mob, you know, the, the mob, uh, mob making, sense making is, you know, we all sort of reinforce that in each other. And, you know, I'm, I saw in Annette by Hannah Gadsby. Uh, it was very, very powerful. And she said in her act, I watched her on Netflix, and she said in her act, she said, I am anger. I am angry. And I want to be heard. And anger can be very and anger can be very powerful. But I don't what I won't don't want to do is spread anger. Is to spread it. 
She said, I'm using my anger very intentionally to be heard. And the first step in sort of a trauma situation, I think collectively is, is to be heard, is, mm-hmm. is for black folks to be heard, which then give voice to all sorts of other groups that also experience that sort of, uh, that, that same type of oppression. And in that, that's the first stage of humanization, I think, in this whole process. So in this process of defining things and looking at where we've come from and not selling on where we've come from, just because we, you know, we put measures in place for equality and so forth, uh, not get comfortable that they're sufficient. Like I said, they're generation one, but I work in the world of IT and just because you build a system and release it, you still need people to make it go. You, people still need training. People still have to understand what to do. So just because you say, well, everything's equal now, it doesn't mean that people know what to do. They still carry the meaning making from hundreds of years. So, so we, all, we have to go back and re-examine these things. But if we can re-examine them from a place uh, of a step one, sort of acknowledging this is us, this is who we are, and almost, you know, almost emulating or simulating a sort of a, a trauma situation. We're all in therapy. And we're, we are in some ways on different sides of the fence. You can say in this case, black folks, white folks, even though you know, I want to throw up in my mouth a little bit because I want to use those nominally. Um, but we're, we're dealing with that collective shame in some way. Mm-hmm. And so there is this opportunity, I think from a therapeutic standpoint to then start humanizing this entire conversation. I think that's, that's one of the most important things in this. And I want to just underscore what you're saying um, also, again, just for our audience, we have some really very experienced people. And I just want to point to the chat and just the quality of the comments in the chat. So Tim Lilenthal has done a tremendous amount of work on this. And he, he gave us a link, um, or he, he put some comments in about some of the distinctions around uh, racism that can be helpful. And Gabe is on the call. We limited the number of people on the call, quick aside, everybody, just so we could have give more time and then Gabe will join us next time. And we have two more, at least two more conversations slated for this. But what I want to underscore that Mark just said is for those of us who have not been as deeply involved in this conversation as we have been, it really is, it is particularly for those of us who are white, it very, very important that we are willing to listen, that we're willing to experience the sometimes just the, the actual trauma that Mark's describing, not of being in the position of having this legacy in which our lineage and our people are responsible for this and how painful that can be. And so the somatic part that Gay met, emphasized on our last call, the willingness to be available, to be present and to listen to a perspective that you haven't tuned into is what Mark is saying is sort of, is preliminary. It's like, that's where we begin. That's how we begin to humanize this. That's, that's how we begin to actually work on our relationships, if you will. And I know I interrupted Corey. Do you guys mind if I just go back to mm-hmm. that pause? Because you were starting to talk about what, what you thought was unhealthy, Corey, and then the, I- The master facilitator, I just love it. Diane, I can't, I, seriously, I'm like, I, I forgot what I was talking about. You're so, you're so I, tracking man, me. I love Diane's facilitation so much. That's why I studied with it. <laughs> I, know, I know mastery when I see it. So I went, I went to the yeah. facilitation. Well, you know, whenever, whenever you sort of cut someone off in the middle of when they're talking, it's a, kind of polite to just return to them. <laughs> Sorry, Corey. Quite all right. Well, but you're just I, so damn smart. I can't keep up with you. You, know? you have to slow down a little. 
Don't well, fall before I kind of finish up, take a shot. Don't fall for that, Corey. Yeah, no, I never that do. Oh, that was a good move. I like yeah. that. Move. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't fall for that, Corey. And by I the know, way, you guys, I don't, I whatever know. that, whatever that, that chuckle you guys got out of it, so obvious to us to the white people are not supreme. I'm, st I'm still hurting. I'm just, oh. you know, oh. Oh. Anyway, go ahead, Corey. Oh Lord, three dies. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, before I, I sort of finish up the point I was trying to make, I want to read another comment that we just got in. Okay. Um, yeah, there's some great people. Out yeah, there's there. some really great yeah, comments happening fantastic. here. And, and yeah. I think that this, this comment actually speaks to this both and kind of position that we're really carefully trying to take with this conversation. Uh, it says, uh, Greg, you are basically speaking to every question and mentioning every source I've wanted to ask this group about in the past month. Only an integralist can love Coleman Hughes and see the value in my grandmother's hands at the same time. Thank you. And this is kind of like what I was trying to get to earlier where we can be, you know, as a white guy, framers, we can be pro-punk and pro-establishment at the same time. And I think that um, we can be anti-racist and anti-anti-racist at the same time. We can look and, fi and find sort of like, here are the partial truths that are really important that we really need to include. And I need to check my own green allergies because I know that there's a whole sort of subculture. There's, a, there's an integral lower left out there that reinforces the idea that if I agree even sort of tentatively with a green idea, then that's just gonna make me seem so green. And I think that we wanna get past those allergies so that we can really meet these ideas and these concepts where they are and up-level them sort of as we go. Um, and then just to find, finish the, the sort of the gestalt I was on earlier, I was talking about some of the healthy and unhealthy interventions that are coming out of this anti-racist project. And we named some of the healthy ones, which is mostly just coming to terms with your own bias and your own sort of hidden shadows and your culturally inherited biases and so forth. All of that is really healthy as long as we understand that only certain sort of waves of development are capable of doing that work. But I'm really taking it a perspective on themselves exactly. and sustaining that perspective. In other words, making our own experience an object. So in this case, what you're describing is, for instance, the work that we do on white privilege, where we look at, at the sort of political, social, cultural advantages that simply having white skin affords us. But to be able to really take a perspective on ourselves as object and, uh, and our situation as object is actually kind of developmentally um, emergent. You know, we okay. say that to be able to hold multiple perspectives, to take a perspective on your own perspective, and then eventually to be able to seek perspectives, those are all achievements, you know, so we have to be aware of that. That's right. Um, yeah, just, yeah. That, just that phrase privilege. I mean, that, that phrase plays completely differently to, for a concrete operational thinker, a formal operational thinker, and let's say a construct aware thinker. I think that for someone who is at these advanced later construct aware stages, the, an idea like privilege is not a big deal at all because we're already looking at our hidden biases and you know, our various self concepts and all that. So it's like we have a little bit more, more space from our identity where we can actually make these things out. But if you're, at a, if you're coming at this idea of privilege from a concrete operational perspective it's insulting what do you mean i'm privileged right i mean it's directly insulting and, and, and accusatory for people so i think that we need to fold in sort of this developmental point of view in terms of just the semiotics of these phrases and how they play differently for different people while also paying attention to the unhealthy interventions and that, that are taking place from the anti-racist movement which includes things like censorship and 
sort of its own, you know, its own absolutism. If you disagree with critical race theory, that's just proving the case of critical race theory um, as an example. So there's, there's a number of unhealthy kind of aspects of this that, yeah, we absolutely want to uh, place some guardrails around as we go. One of the things I would like to say uh, early in your comment just now, you mentioned how we can be like anti-racist, but also have racist ideas at the same time. See, that's a level of of complexity. I call that a blues complexity because the blues, you could actually be happy and sad at the same time. So yeah, it hurts blues, more, bothers you less. Yeah. You know, the, the blues as a form has within it the kind of tension that is great for evolutionary development. So I just want mm-hmm. to put that out here. But also Ibram X. Kendi, who's on like everybody's anti-racist list since he is, you know, has a book on how to be an anti-racist. He actually makes that same point, you know, that this is not about you being, boom, you're a racist. See, he's a lot more nuanced and sophisticated than a lot of the people who use his work and others' work. So I want to make that statement, but I also want to get to something that you know, we, we need to talk about. I can't handle this conversation right now. (laughs) (laughs) White fragility. Okay. So I'm curious. Now this book was not written for me and it wasn't written for Mark. It was written for folks who I call anomaly white or who consider themselves white. So I'm curious as to what you die and what you Corey think about uh, the term, and if you've read the book, what you think about the book? Because I find that some people who are triggered by it haven't even taken the time to read it. You know, so I'm I'm really wondering what you what you think. I, um, Robin D'Angelo, um, I feel that she has done a a very good job of cataloging. Um, uh, the experience that that many black people and people of color have when they're engaged with white people in terms of an unwillingness and an inability of white people to receive and to take in and to really sit with perspectives that are not their own. So I think she's done a great job of cataloging that. And I think that she has um, kind of, you know, the, the spirit of the book to actually ask us to kind of look at the ways in which we won't engage the conversation in a real way, that we won't sustain our attention, that we won't allow ourselves to be in a submitted role, if you will, for a moment, to actually experience for a minute our perspective being put on hold in order to allow another perspective to prevail. So I think that's what she does great. I think what she does poorly is that in our world, we, we do a lot of work with somatics. So if, for instance, if I'm facilitating a conversation about race, someone's new to it, which happens all the time in my work. Someone's brand new to it, white person, brand new to it. And literally they become flooded with feeling and are not really able to stain, sustain their attention. And there could be cognition, there could be memory, there could be reference points to the suffering of uh, her I'm using her in this case, a woman, her own people. It could be confusion around her own, uh, her her, um, genuine aspiration to be for equality for all people. So she's flooded. She's having a very powerful experience. Maybe she starts crying 
rather than framing that as fragility, I would frame that as powerful feeling. Uh, an overwhelming feeling in the system. We're very somatically oriented. Many of us are yogi, yogic practitioners and meditative practitioners. So as a person with those conversations, what I would want to do is not tell her she's wrong for feeling, but actually allow her, give her some instruction around, wow, it's so important what you're feeling. Feel fully, allow your mind to relax. We'll work with your thoughts in a minute. Bring some breath into your belly and into your chest. Allow yourself to breathe. Lengthen your spine and just, com just completely allow these sensations. And I haven't read um, my grandmother's hands yet, but I'll be, I'm very interested to actually do some of that work. And, and just allow yourself to be present with your feeling and with what you're hearing. So to me, there's a compassionate response and a supportive response to actually allow people to succeed in conversations because my biggest concern is she gets shamed and leaves and goes yep. home and tells everybody what a that's terrible right. experience she had. That's right. That's so right. that's, and then, then I have one other complaint and the other complaint is this, the logic of, and I, you know, someone can help me with this, but the logic there, there actually does have to be a point. Mark, to get back to your point, that when we received and we've listened and we're starting to consider these things, where we can raise some of these, I don't want to call them objections, different perspectives, different reference points, different conceptual orientations, where we can raise them and say, okay, now how, how does the fact, okay, an example, I don't have a history of slavery in my background. I have a history of poverty, of war, of um, domestic violence and of alcoholism. How, how can I bring that suffering to bear? Mm -hmm. Is, does it have a role here? Can we ask that question? Mm -hmm. You know, I wanna be, these questions need to be posed yes. and we need to be able to actually nuance the territory. Mm -hmm. In what way does my experience as a suffering human being, either in terms mm -hmm. of being able to empathize or to feel regret or remorse or guilt or whatever it is in a way that's illuminating and life-giving, mm -hmm. how do I do that? Can I bring that? So the fact that it becomes uh, totalitarian, the fact that it becomes coercive, and right, white people read it and beat the shit out of each other with it, yeah. which I just yeah. find completely intolerable, yeah. and that it becomes also that Kafka-esque sort of experience where hmm. you're a fragile racist, <laughs> and I just heard you guys say that, of course, some part of us is all the time. And if you don't agree with that, you're a fragile racist. So it's intellectually problematic and I haven't heard Ken's exact critique of that, but I'm sure he's got one is all I yeah. can say. So that's my response to mm. her book. Mm. That's a great, what a yeah. great response. Powerful guy. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. I may, unless Corey, you want to go or, or can I? Yeah. I, I mean, I would love go to. Go ahead, man. Yeah, go ahead. Since, since we're asking white people to speak. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> all right, but we, we cut a time Corey. <laughs> I can be a little long-winded. I know that. And actually, I was about to say, if you can give me a few minutes. Because you're smart. If, if you can give me a few minutes. I mean, I, I, I did some, you know, a little bit of You're writing. intellectually privileged and you don't know it. <laughs> no, he knows it. He, no, he knows, knows it. it. <laughs> or I keep it well balanced with my, uh, with my dysfunction. So it's always a, a horse race. as to Well, you, you, you're the father of a young daughter. Whenever you have a young child, you will be grounded. That's right. They will grow well, quick. And it gives me a few things to say about the concept of fragility too. Um, this, is, this is a concept that um, has been deeply important uh, 
to me personally, to my family, uh, as well as sort of um, to all of us as we look around and seeing what's going on in the, wor in the world. And I did a little bit of writing on this and I would love to have just a few minutes to kind of share some of my reflections because I, what I wanted to do is really take a close look at this through sort of my own first person and try to sort of like scan my own self-concept for any hints of fragility and where I find them. And for me, that sort of process really helped me get a better understanding of how we can use a phrase like white fragility in a more productive and less kind of divisive sort of way. Um, so just a few minutes. Um, so speaking personally, am I a fragile human being? Fuck no. I mean, sometimes sure, but I try to practice and aspire to genuine anti-fragility. And that anti-fragility allows me to attend to whatever fragilities I may still have remaining in my own self-system and in the culture around me without shying away from those shadowy parts. So as a human being, I do not feel fragile, no. However, if someone was to ask me about my identity as a white person, my, re my relationship with my own whiteness, how fragile, resilient, or anti-fragile is that? And yes, I can feel some fragility there. I can own that, mostly because it's a muscle I haven't really had to use in my life. The circumstances of my birth are such that I haven't had daily reminders of that particular strata of my identity. So there are certain things, certain privileges that I've been able to unconsciously enjoy as a result and certain aspects of my own ethnic identity that I simply haven't been forced to reckon with in a conscious way, simply because that is not a subject that is being made object for me by others in my day-to-day -day life. So when I try to track down my own white identity as far back as it goes, what do I see? I see a little boy who was disgusted by his own family's racist hair language and felt guilty and vulnerable because of it. I see a little boy who was scarred when they showed him roots at a young age in school, surrounded by other black students, which made him feel a deep guilt for something that occurred generations before he existed, but which still created ripples and repercussions he knew were present for people who did not look like him. I see a little boy who had no way of actually processing or metabolizing these enormous feelings at a young age, and who lived in a culture that tends to pave over these sorts of tender areas at the seat of white identity, so he can spend as little time thinking about them as possible. And now that I've achieved something like integral consciousness, I can look back and see how much my own inherited understanding of my own whiteness was built on somewhat precarious foundations and laden with all sorts of unexamined assumptions and advantages. And then finally, do I feel some fragility in that layer of my identity? Yes. Fortunately, I've cultivated enough anti-fragility throughout the rest of my self-system that I can then admit that and hopefully begin to work with it and through it. And I don't need to self-flagellate in order to do so because I don't, have to actually ident I don't have to identify with that fragility even when I find fragility within my identity. So that was sort of um, my own reflections and just trying to find, you know, where, where does this, this idea of white privilege, where does this actually land in my own self-system? Mm. Right? Mm. I hate being let's, called let's, fragile because I'm white, but my white identity, yeah, it's fucking fragile. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's see what the impact of what you just said on on Greg and Mark is. How did, how did you guys receive that? Just curious. You want to go, Mark? Because I'm I'm yeah. ready. I'm ready to go. But you can go, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, Corey, first of all, man, thank you. Very powerful. Um, and I resonate with what you said. I resonate deeply with what die with you talk about 
um, your comments about there's sort of this dual nature of fragility. There's this sort of uh, opening, opening to the awareness of the biases, the inherent biases about, or sort of the, um, you know, whatever, whatever fragility and privilege imply. And then of course, and defensiveness maybe is another word. Yeah, it, it may be defensive. Yeah, defensiveness in, in that. And then obviously, I think some of the the poor, poorly implemented discourse around it. Mm-hmm. And you know, just briefly, I want to touch on that because you know, and I try to use my own experience as a proxy for all this because I think that's where the work is. The work, the work ultimately is in our own experience, and each of us doing the work is what contributes to the collective change. Um, so you know, I, I was laughing to myself about the word fragility and privilege, um, which I, I personally never bring into conversations. Um, I, th- I think the the movements, uh, the pro- the more progressive movements, I think need a PR firm to kind of get uh, <laughs> Amen. Uh, approved words on on some of these things. Um, oh my God, I'm with you, brother. It's, it's honestly, like, it's like, <laughs> help this us. This one will trigger literally effing everybody. Let's. It's just like, yo, we didn't see that coming. Like, really? Um, you know, you know, you know, I I empathize so deeply in a sense, maybe even to a fault, um, with everybody because human life is so goddamn hard. Aww. There's such a there's such mm-hmm. a sense of underlying suffering mm-hmm. constantly. And so when we use words like privilege and we use words like fragility and say, well, you have that. All of us experience this moment to moment tacit sense of suffering somatically. And so to hear that, I don't know if it's so much and maybe to some degree it is this sort of, you know, psychogenerational subconscious triggering to some racial elements, but I think even bigger than that, it's how dare you marginalize this this experience of suffering that's real for me. So when you tell me I have privilege, um, mm-hmm. it, it, that's it, it strips me of my own reality, which I think human reality is steeped in suffering, which is one of the, the things I appreciate um, you know, I've learned from Greg about jazz and blues and the complexity that the way that those emulate life, you know, uh, I had an epiphany talking to Greg at, at some point, we're having this conversation and it hit me that one of the beautiful things about jazz and the blues is that it is a proxy for our own human experience. The, the sort of coming to terms with chaos, showing up our own virtuosity, how we should be in the world and so forth but it has this sort of underlying melancholy sensation to it. And I think that that experience is viscerally real for people so that when we use these words, which is why I think all of us have reiterated this during the conversation, words are powerful. Semantics are incredibly powerful. And one of the criticisms that I always have is, what's your end game when you use that word? Because you're using it, are you using to weaponize? So, um, or you, what, and I think that's a good practice for all of us. How is that going to be received on the other end? Because if our interest is dialogue, if our, inf- if our interest is a process of humanization, I think that affects them how we start using those words. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So I want to thank you, Mark. 
Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Di, for you know weighing in on on those matters in the eloquent ways that you all did. Um, I'd like to add a couple of things. One, whenever we use a term like white blank or <laughs> black blank, I know there are some that will say that's automatically racist. Not necessarily, but I think we have to be very careful because race itself breaks people up into groups. Mm -hmm. So if you talk about white blank to an individual, you're focusing on their membership in a particular mm. group and yes. making yes. judgments on them as an individual as related to a group and their experience may not have anything to do with the worst aspects of that group, damn it. Right, okay? right. That's the first thing. Then there's, a, there's an element of just empathy. If someone is fragile, if a white person is fragile, why the hell are you going to run? Or feeling, them? just right. feeling or just a lot. Right, I mean, why would you? Yeah. You know, okay, now Brett Weinstein, he is someone who was drummed out of Evergreen College. Uh, in a horrible way, I think. And I heard a podcast, or not a podcast, a video, of him recently where he talked about during that time, and this is a man who's actually on the left. Do we need to create just a little bit of context for our listeners who oh, may not yes. be familiar with please. the Evergreen? So oh, it happened in 2017, Evergreen College, one of the most liberal experimental colleges in the country, probably the most liberal. And I think its identity was also... Uh, multicultural and inclusive, very diverse, um, with a very kind of inc uh, inclusive consensus-oriented faculty with lots of, lots of community processes. Anyway, at a certain point, um, they created an, uh, an equity um, board or committee and uh, race identity and racial politics and power issues related to race became front and center and things got super extreme. And Brett Weinstein is a Jewish professor of um, evolutionary evolution. Bio. You know, what's that yeah. thing we mm. study? Evolution. Okay. Evolution, who basically took exception with some of the, um, you might just say dogma to keep it simple, some of the dogmas of this movement. And basically, as you said, was drummed out of his position and left evergreen. So you can, get, you can watch it on YouTube if you're interested in it, and it's there. But anyway, I just wanted to give people a background there. I appreciate, I appreciate that, that. That was an acceptable reason to interrupt me. Thank you so much. Uh <laughs> <laughs> See, he can take a, a meta perspective on everything. Okay, no, I really, I really do appreciate it because people need context. You know, they really yeah. do. They, so, I was afraid they didn't know what you were talking about. Exactly. Go ahead. So I would so I heard him talking about that, and he says that the first time he heard the word right fragility was when someone said to him, Oh, you're just experiencing or showing white fragility. He had no idea what was they were talking about. I think so, Robin D'Angelo was actually a consultant at Evergreen when all this was going on. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah, she's in the if you watch the, the videotape, she's in the the videos, oh, wow. teaching. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it's like my issue is weaponizing these terms. So I'm going to riff on something Mark said in terms of like how he goes about this. And I, I have a very, you know, 
yeah, I have a meta perspective. I have a, a strategic way of dealing with these issues. When I'm talking to an individual, I never refer to them in terms of their race and something negative. To me, that just, it automatically puts them on the defensive. And if someone is being racist, and I very rarely witness that on an individual basis. I'll give one example when I did see it that I think would be helpful, but I am trying to deal with that person as an individual. And so that for me to focus on their identity marker and then add a term like supremacist, superiority, uh, privilege, uh, fragility, that's not gonna get me too far in terms of communicating with that person or communicating with a group of people who have been accused of that, okay? So I, I got big problems with that. Now, I'll give you an example of a racist comment that I saw watching um, uh, the CBS Morning Show that's on from seven to 10. And there was a great instance where one of the three reporters, a white male reporter, went out and he talked to people in my neck of the woods. I'm in Fairfield County in Connecticut, and he went to Stanford, Connecticut, and he just stopped people on the streets to ask them about like, what is racism to you and this and that? And why do you think there's disparities? And there was, there was a range of, it was a great case study because there was a range of responses that I think across the spectrum. But one woman said, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with intelligence. Maybe they're not as intelligent, which is a stereotype and a racist perspective that a lot of folks up until the 60s really believed. IQ in the 20s, they were, it was used in an invidious way, not only against blacks, against Jews and other ethnic whites. Now, what did I say to my wife? I said, Jewel, I said, you know, that was racist, but I didn't stop there. I said, I'm glad she said it. So many people are afraid to voice what they think. And if they can't voice it, you have no chance to engage them, to bring them to an awareness, a self-awareness of how that lands for people and the history. That's right. The, the history that that type of statement actually carries. Mm -hmm. I'll give one, one other example. And this is, I think is great because we're talking about the man who I think has taken the mantle of Richard Pryor, that's David Chappelle. David Chappelle, I think five or six years ago, uh, went to a comedy club and he wasn't slated to speak or, or to you know, do a routine. But of course they said, oh, please, please, please. So he got up there and he's, he, he specializes in, in jokes regarding uh, and around race. <laughs> so he was talking about something. He's made a few jokes related to gender and sex too. <laughs> Uh-oh. That's a couple. Uh-oh. One or two. Uh -oh. <laughs> and they were pretty damn funny. <laughs> yeah, but but it got into fair the enough. trouble. Yeah. Fair enough. Especially, I can laugh at them. Especially in this culture, he's gotten in trouble, you know. But yeah. in this in this particular instance, there was a white woman from the audience who said to him about some issue, ah, get over it. Yeah. He didn't mm. blast her. He went through a process of giving her historical background where he explained to her what he's gone through and what other black folks have gone to after this happened she went to him 
she said, I apologize. I just didn't know. Hmm. And he said, good. This is a good place. You have room to grow. Now go and make sure you pass this on to others. That's how we do this. We don't do this by finger pointing and like condemning people. And I, you know, I, I really dislike that attitude anyway because it's self-righteous as hell. And there's something about self-righteousness that really gets me. Mm-hmm. Because we, because to take a Christian perspective, because I, I grew up a Christian, uh, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, okay? All of us. So to be self-righteous like you all that, please, I'm sorry. You don't have a right to do that. You don't, okay? So that's yeah. what I got to say. I, I, I'm Greg, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, you know, I have, I have a diversity of friends and colleagues and, and people I spend time with. And um, a lot of them, uh, you know, probably have views that would you know, uh, be incredibly triggering to the more progressive, uh, you know, my more progressive friends and colleagues. Um, But I think it's important that we have a relationship and that they have a voice um, echoing what Greg's talking about. Um, Part of the difficulty of having this conversation, again, is this hidden sort of inherited authoritarian approach of suppressing other voices. And the energy of the culture being able to get to some equilibrium to have this conversation cannot stabilize if one, if aspects of the culture feel like, well, if I say how I really feel, I'm gonna get roasted. And that's, you know, that is, I think, the resentment that a lot of the liberal left is getting from the more conservative of our, you know, of, of our society and culture in terms of, and I have these conversations with them. It's like, you know, you know, Mark, I, I hear from them. Like I, you know, it shocks me. I can't believe you don't just blast me. You, you, you kind of let me say what I feel. And, you know, this is what I feel. And I learn a lot from them. I learn about, again, it's a process of humanization. I learn about their fears. I learn about their, Mark, I'm just afraid that, you know, Like, you know, black people may get violent against, you know, they'll get violent because of all the, you know, all the shit that's happened. And it's like, and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that. It's like, no, that's, that's workable. Let's talk about that. Let's have a conversation about that. It's all workable. But until, until parts of the movement really begin to have that level of acceptance and allow those different voices, uh, we, we can't get past square one where we can really, really have a conversation. And I think those of us that are, you know, sort of proclaiming to, to be uh, extending the movement out, we all have to do the work, the self-work of asking ourselves these questions. What's our end game? Why are we doing this? Is it to facilitate a dialogue? Um, you know, or, or is, it to, is it retribution? Are we working out our own retributive kind of um, energies inside of ourselves because I, I know a lot of people that too. It's like, oh yeah, I know people who are career protesters and there is no end game. It's, it's, it's deconstruction as hell. It's, you know, burn, burn the house down. It's like, okay. Yeah. You know, I had, I had a friend uh, and said, yeah, yeah. I said, so you want to get rid of the mayor in town? It's like, oh yeah. Yeah. I said, then what? <laughs> uh, 
De de defund the police. Yeah, defund the then police. What? What's your then game? What? What's your end game? Uh, <laughs> give me your torch. Come on, hand it over. Give me the pitchfork. Pitch That's it. Put them down. There you go. Deep breath. Um, so, so, so yeah, I mean, so I just wanted to point that out. I, I think that's tremendously, it's tremendously healing too for everybody. Just people say, oh my God, I can speak. There's room for me here. Even if it's not popular, there's still room for me. And then I think magic happens. Then people, that humanization process happens. People start to find commonalities like, wow, you're liberal and I don't hate your guts. I actually want you to come to my kid's birthday party. <laughs> You know, I, I get that. You know, there's all kind of experiences. Wow, it's like, well, tell, yeah. I mean, I, to, 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 uh, very quickly, promise. This is such a cliche, but one of the things that I do, uh, in terms of a political spectrum, I consider myself. I've made this declaration on Facebook, a radical moderate. Okay, and I, and I, this is the cliche. But I literally have friends on the left and the right, okay? Um, and I learn from them and I engage I them. Don't have any, I don't have any friends on the right, but I got a lot of family. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Anyway, keep going, Greg, sorry. Not a lot, enough. Right, 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 yeah. I hear you, I hear you. Well, okay. yeah, I mean, you know, frankly, in terms of me and, and the word friendship, again, I'm very careful in the words I use there's a handful of people who are true friends and there are a lot of people who are either colleagues or acquaintances, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about a small group of people, period. But I've got some folks who like, they are Republicans, yeah. you know? I got, sure. one, I got one cat who I went to college with. He was the drummer in the jazz band I was in at Hamilton College back from 81 mm -hmm. to 85. You know, we, 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 we used to get high together. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I said, I mentioned that weed issue <laughs> earlier, you know, so, so, but the thing is my man's a Republican, you know, and, and he works for some uh, uh, right wing think tanks. I, I don't even like the term right wing because it has a certain connotation, but anyway, but we're fine. You know what I mean? We don't agree on certain things and that's okay. I got another friend who's a Republican who's a, who's a, a, a macroeconomic genius, okay? And we, we sh what do we share? We share this. He's an Ellison Murray man, straight up. And so that was the beginning of our, and I found out he was Republican. Okay. I think we need to have, even in integral, I've stated this on Facebook, it's important to have a range of perspectives to draw upon. That's one of the problems with Black American politics, we are so tied to the Democratic Party that they can, and this is everybody say, they can take us for granted and do, okay? So there needs to be, you know, some more broadening of- A little hybrid vigor. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the, hey the, guys, so- I just wanted to real quickly reflect, Mark, I was really appreciative when you made this discernment between sort of our personal work that we have to do versus kind of the social work that needs to be done mm -hmm. out there. Because I think that that discernment really actually helps clean up and, and give some guardrails around how to use language like this that we've been talking about. Because language like 
like privilege and systemic bias and, you know, sort of all these terms that can be really, really valuable stuff when we're doing our own personal shadow work. Mm -hmm. Right. These are amazing yeah. tools for, yeah. let's just say, orange and higher cognition to do right. shadow work and to, to really take a look again at our self-system and our self-concepts and kind of route these things out. But the minute that we sort of like, you know, project that out there, it's rude to do shadow work on other people. It's <laughs> rude to make that's, objects that's out right. of other that's people's right. subjects. Right, and right. that's how these terms yes. are being used and why yes. we're getting as much. So that to me would be like an example of like, here's a healthy yeah. integral guardrail that we're going to put around this language. Here's how to use this language effectively. And if you use it this other way, you're probably going to move, move yourself further away from your goal uh, than, than you think you are. Yes. All right. I have three things, guys. First of all, we have, we're just in ongoing conversations and we're, get, we're really focusing on these terms and on an integral lens. We want to talk about the work that uh, everyone needs to do. Next time, we want to talk about what the interpersonal domain is, Mark. Um, we want to talk about how our personal relationships are super important to what we're talking about. So I want everyone who's listening to know that we're in the middle of an ongoing set of conversations. The second thing is we have really smart, engaged, um, sophisticated people who've worked in many different domains who are listening to us right now, who we definitely want to get to and include in the conversation. But I think we're remiss if we don't take some time right now to actually address the economic disparity, the fact that, that uh, I, th I think if I read this morning correctly, that the median income for a black family in this country is 10% of what the median income is for a white family, that these disparities are very real and they persist. And when people talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, I've been told, and it seems to bear out in what I've read, that the founders of Black Lives Matter are also Marxist in their orientation and that, you know, I mean, you know, the difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' views of economic justice and Bernie describing himself as a social democrat and not a communist and where we are in terms of our response to this. And I, I was talking to my uh, husband this morning, who was the chair of the Racial and Ethnic Fairness Task Force for uh, 10 years. And I think he's on the call and it might be starting worthwhile to bring our questioners in. And maybe we could start with Mike, if you guys are up for that, but to really talk about how, you know, what is our approach to creating more economic fairness for everybody in this country. Like, I think, I think we don't address class, we don't, don't address economics. And it was also a critique of our last conversation that came from Gabe's father, that we weren't, we weren't talking enough concretely about these disparities. We're talking about how we want to engage in the linguistic fashion and the quality of our relationships and our engagements. But what about that? And how do you guys feel about bringing Mike into the, into the gallery? Let's do it. I'll bring them over right now. Do it. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's take a few minutes to really just focus on the, the racial, I mean, not the racial, the economic disparities and economic injustice. And what do we do? What, what do we support? Well, how do we change this? And I think it's a really important conversation in terms of also the, just the growing 
gap between the very wealthy in this country and, and the working class and the middle class. So um, it's Mike, Mike, there you are. So I don't know if you want to pose the question or if you have some thoughts that you want to just to, to launch, to set us off, but you and I, you and I were talking about it this morning. That's why I invited you in. Yeah. Um, I've really been enjoying this conversation and I don't, I don't know that I have anything stellar to bring to it, but it seems to me the, and I'm, I was a judge and I'm a lawyer and I'm very, I have a tendency to be very pragmatic in my orientation because dealing This is with, Mike's work product from the Racial and Ethnic Fairness Task Force. They've just, believe it or not, they just contacted him to bring it up again and to relook wow. at all of it. So, 20 years later. 20 years uh, later, yeah. You know, the one of the, the things that we were talking about this morning, and it seems um, that the Black Lives Matter, what I see positively is the, the synergy between Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, two recessions in 10 years, mm. the decline of the middle class mm. over the past 40 years. Mm. The outsourcing of manufacturing and the de, de, and even the shrinking the working class, is that fair? Or yeah. labor? Yeah, so that the West, the American mythology, the, the mm. capitalism over everything mythology, which has been such a myth for the middle class Americans, opportunity that it provides and of course the fact that anybody who isn't making money is just surplus labor and not talented for some reason seems to me that i'd like to hear whether you think greg and mark there's a real potential here for a pragmatic coming together of black lives matter which is really ripening the the majority of the countries, you could say the white sensitivity to racial injustice that the mainstream got, maybe. got in the 60s and that we sort of, you know, thought, okay, we just have to recognize and it'll take care of itself. And of course it didn't do that. And that that could come together with this new realization that the, the, the letting the elite continue to get wealthier and wealthier at the expense of everybody else that we might actually see racial and economic justice dovetailing here going mm. forward. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thanks, um, Michael. Yeah. Uh, I would say that I, I think pragmatic approaches are, are, are totally key. Um, I think that there are two parallel tracks that we can, we can focus on. One track would be looking at the... Black, you can say underclass. I'm careful in my terms. Uh, we could talk about the, people might be surprised that I think in the 60s, you had, I don't know, maybe 60, 70, 80% of uh, black folks um, living under the poverty level. And now you have uh, about 30% approximately. That's a pretty big advance. I think we need to acknowledge that. Um, but we know that there's all types of social, family, 
education. Oh, there's so many dysfunctions with certain zip codes in the nation, which are still segregated. So I think one track would be to have a focus on those particular areas. What can we do over a 10, 15, 20 year period to up level the life chances and lifestyles of those people on all metrics, all levels, okay? So that's one track. But another track is just how do we deal with this vast inequality that has developed uh, where the middle class is basically stagnant and it's been decades that way while those at the very top are getting wealthy and wealthy and wealth. How do we deal with that? Uh, the president of the Ford Foundation put out a message the other day and he said, you know, he says, now he's a black male gay man. He says, I'm privileged. I'm privileged based on my position. You know, my, I, I didn't start that way, but I am now. The question becomes, what will people of privilege, and I'm not just talking about white folks, I'm talking about from a class perspective, all of us who have been fortunate enough to move beyond a poverty level, what are we going to sacrifice to help others? Not to look at them as victims, not to say they, they, they cannot uh, help themselves, but we need to have some targeted uh, uh, approaches. But my God, the, other, the, the parallel track is how do we deal with this overall neoliberal capitalist system that ain't working? What do we do? You know, there's a, there, there are all kinds of different proposals and stuff, but we have to deal with that. UBI, universal basic income, is one approach that some take. And I think that that is something that could be, you know, universal to not focus on a particular class, but that could help everyone. There are pe people who are well off, refuse it, don't take it. I mean, there, you can work out all that stuff, you know? But uh, I think there's a two-track approach. And I think, lastly, that Robert F. Smith, the um, wealthiest black investor in the nation, he just came out last week with a proposal. He called it the 2% proposal where major financial and other uh, uh, companies to take for 10 years, 2% of their net income and apply it to the building of uh, a black economic foundation and base, starting with you know, community banks and this, and this, and that would be, he didn't use the term, he's got more savvy enough to, but that would be a form of reparations, okay? That would be, uh, but it wouldn't be reparations like it's compensatory or, excuse me, just compensatory. It's an investment. It's a question of investing in human capital so that the nation itself will be the beneficiaries, not just the people who are being helped. The whole GDP would go up. It would help all of us. So that's a specific proposal that I would uh, definitely advocate for. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the chances are of the of getting that sort of pragmatic uh, buy-in by the now now increasingly powerful and for good reason Black Lives Matter movement? Oh um, well, I think Black Lives Matter has been an impetus. Um, I think that Black Lives Matter um, is a is a self-evident statement to me. I have some issues with their platform. 
Uh, I'm supportive of a lot of their platform. I'm not with uh, wanting to disable or disaggregate the nuclear family. Really? No, I don't think so. Um, I'm not with that. I think there's a mixture of certain issues. Um, I think that there's a real strong trans orientation to Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter that, don't, that doesn't directly have to do with Black folks. So I don't totally understand that. I would want to engage and find out more. But so I'm not just out and out against them, nor am I just totally for their platform. But they, you have to acknowledge, they have been an impetus and a focal point that's really helped uh, a lot of people come to terms with the issues that Black folks have been dealing with and have known about for a long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Can you I know? say just, a, just one thing on this? It does seem to me that uh, you know, we always talk about tetra arising and co-arising, you know, the pandemic and uh, this social unrest and the issues related to racism, Black, Black Lives Matter, climate change. I mean, this is a big gestalt that we're looking at, you know, and I really appreciate um, the pull of the Black Lives Matter movement of the moderate position to the left, because as uh, because of Reagan and because as Mike points out to me, the undoing of kind of Roosevelt's New Deal and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society under Reagan. And then we're now we're seeing the skyrocketing of uh, uh, wealth disparity that this pull left, I think is gonna, is, is really important. And I think for, in relationship to these issues of economic justice. And I think that the pressure on Biden to a point an African-American woman, and there are, very, there are very good women who, if he, if he chooses to do that, but really, really good women he can choose from. Susan and that, Rice. Susan Rice is great. And, and I think that, so I do think that those, and, I, and I, hope that, I hope that, you know, I hope Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, we see them in the cabinet. I, something has to be done about that. And then I think, as you're saying, Greg, there's the, there's the bigger issue of how capitalism is, Despoiling the planet, the ways in which the uh, the corrupt the corruption, if you will, of the unions—not the corruption, but the the diminishing of the unions and the inability to make a good living as a working class person in this country—and uh, the presence of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie—I'm just hoping that there's something that happens because of that. Is what I'm trying to say. There is a way, I think, Mike, that that could dovetail to respond to your question. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a Bernie person. Um, one of the reasons I looked really carefully, why am I not for Bernie? Why am I not for Bernie? I want to be for Bernie. Why am I not? Because I kind of agree with him. And when I listen to him really, really carefully, it's because he, he doesn't have the ability to delineate for me where the successes are. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't tell me, is Trader Joe's as bad as Exxon? Right, right. Is Southwest Airlines as um, exploitive as, um, I don't know, whatever other, you know, the finance industry? I mean, where, where can I, where can I, I don't simply, and I feel this way a little bit about AOC too. It's not that I, I don't right. disagree with their critiques, mm -hmm. but they don't allow me ever to to turn my focus to where we've had some success. And so yeah. when I listen to them, I feel depleted. Yeah. That's just what happens to me. 
that's what I experienced too. A kind of reductionism. Yeah. 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 Right. I, I would say that I, I would just bring. Thanks, two, Mark. Two, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Two two quick frames. Um, yeah. Ken, Kenneth Burke, who was very very influential, he's a polymath on um, Ralph Ellison and, and Albert Murray. He's kind of confined to rhetoric and communication studies these days, but Kenny, Kenneth Burke, he talked about two frames, two basic frames, a frame of acceptance and a frame of rejection. Yeah, yeah. The frame of rejection says, this is wrong, they debunk it and they're against stuff. Right. The frame of acceptance, they don't accept injustice, no, but they accept the reality of the situation and they find ways to deal with it in a way that's a little more heroic, that can embrace humor and comedy, that can embrace you know, the fact that we probably won't ever completely eradicate racism. No, but it also creates just a tiny little window for something like the ways in which we're better than we were 50 years ago, right. 100 years ago, 400 years ago, I mean, our, our evolutionary developmental view would say that there is movement towards greater goodness, truth, and beauty. And right. when you're just in a, in a negative discourse or a rejecting discourse, there's no right. room to actually acknowledge that. I do think it matters right. that Obama was our first black president. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. Well, I, I, part of this mob tendency that I spoke to, I think we're still playing that out. And sort of tying this into what Michael says about Black Lives Matter and how does that hinge into this pragmatic approach, I think we're still caught in this, we're caught in this cycle of the outcry and the pain, which is symptomatic yeah. of, the, of the structured inequalities, right? Mm -hmm. So Black Lives Matter is a symptom of this. The AOC sentiment, the Bernie sentiment, they're symptomatic. And I think the energy around that is this burn down the place, torch it all uh, kind of uh, mindset. And so that mindset is still playing itself out. It's the mindset behind identity politics for the sake of that. It's just equality driven by an authoritarian frame to no, any, no conclusion other than the, the pure deconstruction itself. So there is no end game. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's like the deconstructive... Yeah. Um, move is all there is. There it's isn't there that. Is. There right. isn't that constructive move out of that. It's all exactly. okay. So that makes is, sense. There is no. So there is no end game. And I'll just say this real quick, Greg. And then I wanted to answer Michael's question a little bit and just provide this context. I think that I'm not sure that Black Lives Matter, as I think an outcry, initially a, an essential outcry, mm -hmm. but as a as an approach, I'm not sure it's the right approach. In fact, I don't think it's an approach at all. So I don't know if it has a place in the pragmatic, in a conversation in pragmatics, which I think is about root causing, um, which I think is about taking a deeper examination of the systems. So now we're talking about a true systemic look and a root cause look, reverse engineering the systems and bringing people to the conversation that bring that level of nuance, dovetailing what Greg is talking about, looking at things like universal basic income, Look, you know, it's it's an economic conversation. It's also a psychosocial conversation in terms of do we have the capacity to then wield these advanced tools? Whatever advanced tools we put in place pragmatically, are we also going to govern those tools properly? So we have to also have people on the other side that are thinking about thinking, right? So yeah. how are we then using and applying the tools, right? Because I look at justice, take justice, for example. 
the way we administer laws in this country, I think, at a very high level, is with a punitive bent. Philosophically, everything is punitive. The end game is, was anybody punished? That's the accomplishment, right? Um, what needs to start to emerge is collaborative inquiry. Why did that happen? So we're not just looking for people to burn at the stake, but we're asking, why did it happen like that? And we can't really be honest about our systems and get at the root of our systems and the fact that, to some degree, there are a lot of people that I think have more of an incentive to keep the systems in place. We can't have that honest conversation if there's always at the end of the day going to be people who are punished. So that's just one of the ways that we approach these things. You know, rever the reverse engineering process needs a deeply dis systems theory approach, I think, on steroids, right? An integrally informed systems theory. But it also needs people that also think about thinking, okay, what capacity does it take to act actually operate this, this very complicated piece of machinery? You can send a, you know, a water treatment center plant to a village that have never seen uh, you know, human beings outside of their own village. They don't know how to use the damn plant though, right? So it's an incredibly sophisticated system, but if you don't have people that have the knowledge base to actually implement it and fix it, adapt it, innovate it and so forth, who can, who can iterate on the ability to actually make it better and sustain it, it's no good. So I think from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't think Black Lives Matter is an integral part of that. I think it's an outcry. I think it's a product of the pain of mm -hmm. that. And I think we mm -hmm. need to delay That's it. a good distinction. That's a good distinction, Mark. There's well, can I, just real briefly, because I, mean, I, I do yeah, think go ahead, Corey. Yeah. it's important for us to note sort of what successes we're, we're actually achieving as we go. I just want to point out that here in Colorado, largely because of the protest movement, right? And largely, actually, you could say because of sort of the cropping up of violence that we were seeing in cities like Denver, we just did away with qualified immunity. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big deal. Change. This is how it's supposed to work when you have yeah. this kind of upswelling of public dissent, is that it's supposed to make the policymakers fucking scramble to right. find a solution that can A, make things better in the short term and B, reduce the risk of violence in, in, or in the short term. Reduce yeah. the problem in the long term, reduce violence in the short term. And that's exactly what we've been seeing. And I think that, that this is the kind of pressure that I'm hoping continues to get put on our policy uh, uh, you know, sort of leaders from, yeah. this, from the streets, directly from the streets. Because the Skillful inner- pressure. The, exactly. The right. inner the inner liberal in me tells me that we want a strong and vibrant government. The integral conservative tells me is that that government should not be afraid of anything except for its own people. And to me, this is sort of this is this is rubbing against my inner conservative in a way. It's like, yeah, you 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 guys should be scared. You know, you guys should be scrambling to change these laws and come up with any sort of short-term solutions that you can that will relieve some of this pressure and will begin to sort of get us out of this 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 sort of cul-de-sac that we've been in for the last 40 years because michael i think that the when you brought up the point that all of these sort of uh you know conversations about race and trying to overcome these problems over the last 40 years have taken place within this container of neoliberalism and that container brings its own systemic biases along with it. It deprivileges de communities. It, 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 it overprivileges material realities. It actually removes so many of the tools that people need in order to you know, grow up through these major stages of development and transcend, overcome racism 
just by their own kind of de developmental trajectory. So much of that has been kind of broken off by this neoliberal experiment for the last 40 years and everything else that's come out of it, the, the war on drugs, which disproportionately affected black communities, um, the, the sort of prison industrial system on steroids, which has, you know, really become a big problem over the last 40 years. Um, so it's interesting, you know, and, and Greg, you mentioned Robert Smith, who I think you identified as the richest black man. Um, we have our own Rob Smith, who actually talks about this in terms of like, there, there, there are two spheres. There's the economic sphere and the cultural sphere. And guess what? The, the conservatives won the economic sphere and pushed it way past the edge. The liberals won the cultural sphere and pushed it way past the edge. Mm -hmm. And now we're at this dual inflection point and people are confusing sort of which factors right. are yeah. coming from which sphere. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one, yeah. one thing I would just note that I think I said that I think there is that the, if you will, the white culture, the dominant culture, got in knock, got, got the civil rights lesson in the 60s. And, you know, we passed legislation, as, as Greg observed, we've gotten rid of most of the institutional, the institutionalization of old, uh, you know, ethnocentric categorizations based on race and things like that. Yeah, and patterns of discrimination. Yeah. And, the, and the white community, if you will, thought that the job was done as far as they mm -hmm. were concerned. Right. And that, that one of the things about the, the, this regrettable violence, this police violence and the way we're, we're seeing this is it's it's kind of humiliating the whites who know in their hearts mm. that they haven't finished the job. Yeah. Yeah. And the example I make is this study that, that I worked on years ago. It kind of just got parked. Well, 20 years later, all of a sudden the institution is saying, you know, but only after two weeks of, you know, they burned a police car and so. Well, wait, wait, wait! They didn't just get parked. Let, let's just be let's be more subtle about well, that. I mean, there were there were quite a few recommendations that were, like for instance, around profiling. Yes. Right. right. So, it, around profiling, data collection, anything that cost a lot of money, probably didn't get as fully invested in and realized as we would have liked. So, I I, I don't want to give people the impression. <laughs> that nothing came from that work because it's not the case. Right, just but not that, as I'd hoped it would. But, yeah, of course, yeah. But, anyway. but it's sort of being brought out again 20 years later because the, this violence and the riots and the, the publicity has kind of reignited this sense of a need to, if you will, white guilt. And that can be a positive force. Um, and there's a natural awakening. It's like the mainstream is kind of moving into a pluralistic worldview. It's like we're seeing the center of gravity in the country actually start to press into the places, into the mentality that used to just be in the Bay Area and New York City and Santa Fe and, you know, like that's, or Washington State, you know, it's really wonderful in a way to see this willingness to kind of start to, to engage this. Don't you think, Mike? Like in, in, a, in, a, in a much bigger way. Hey guys, it's three. Do, do we want to bring this to a close or do we want to keep going or do we want to get some more questions? Where are people at?
this is we're well i i would frankly i think it would be fair if we got some more questions if people are willing to hang in that they've been hanging with us i want to give them a chance yeah. but i've got to like uh go address something and come right back okay you know you know what i'm sure. saying okay sure. okay <laughs> I, I, I unfortunately have a hard stop um okay. so i will catch everyone on the next adventure great talk together but uh, awesome. this is wonderful i'm so excited to do these this is great and uh it's so fun you. for us to get to just think about these things together isn't it i know i know honestly i just like hanging out with you guys i like it's fantastic so we'll, we'll stick around for another 30 minutes and just take a few questions and then Mark okay. will, will definitely circle up and keep going. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Michael, good to see you. Thanks for contributing as well. And uh, Di, Corey, big love to you. And Thank we'll you, talk man. to you soon. Everybody that was in the conversation on the panel, love the comments. Um, looking forward to more. So I will see you very soon. Okay. Peace. Bye, Mark. Yeah, while we're waiting for Greg to come back, I'll just, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm the youngest guy on, on, on the show today because Gabe's not here. I think Gabe is a little bit younger than me, but. How uh, old are you, Corey? I'm 40, fuck, three? You I always are? Say I thought you were 33. <laughs> no, I'm 43. <laughs> How long have I known you? Yeah, I thought you were 28. You knew, you've known me for, geez, about 15 years now. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is amazing. But I just yeah, want to, I, I just want to reflect, Michael, that, that you just, you just described perfectly my experience. I mean, I have actual memories of, you know, being in school, learning about the civil rights movement, for example, learning about all this um, that emerged in the 1960s throughout the 70s. And there was just this attitude that was being held by my boomer teachers at the time, which was just sort of this like, um, don't worry, guys, we already took care of all that for you. You don't need to worry about this silly civic stuff. That was our generation. We, and, and of course, it makes sense coming from the me generation that they would you know, wrap their arms around all of this and hold it tightly. But I think that that sort of did have an effect. I think that over you know, multiple generations, I think what we're seeing right now, the upswelling and the urgency, a big reason why it's as sort of loud and raucous as it is, is because we've been repressing our civic responsibilities and our civic obligations for multiple generations. And it feels like now that is being invited to come back online in a really, really big way um, that we haven't seen in, in decades, really. Well, I I'm going to take a little bit of exception to that, Corey, just Please. in the sense that I would say two things in addition to what you're saying. Um, I think part of it is that these movements come in waves, in big mm -hmm. waves. There's a big wave. There change happens, people integrate, and then they happen again. I think another thing that happens is it really depends on where you're located in culture. So for me, I did a lot of work on issues related to race, to equity, um, social justice in my 30s and 40s, because I was working in the court system, because we were working on the Racial and Ethic Fairness Task Force, because I was doing back then diversity training because I was facilitating conversations. So for me, because of where I was located in culture, these things were very alive for me. Sure. But in terms of the mainstream, there, there may have been a receding happening at that point. But I will say this, I think one of the weaknesses of American culture is that I think we don't, I mean, it's just my view, you guys, this is a quiet little view. I feel like because we don't have any required, um, what do you call it, Mike, where you're, 
not either go to the army or the Peace Corps or whatever. What's that thing? Conscription. National yeah, that you're, service. yeah, no, yeah national. Na no national service. That there's tremendous um, dissociation from governance generally, from the sort of, um, you might say, just the evolutionary process of culture. It's like, I personally, if I were queen for a day, I would, add, I would insist that people do 18 months of national service. And during that process, they get educated about the complexity of what it means to run this country and why we need to be active citizens. I think it's a huge gap in our way of being. And I, so I think that experience of we've been neglecting it is partly our responsibility. We don't require anything of anyone. Yeah. Hundred percent. I want. I want to riff on that real sec, uh, real quick, Dan, because you know I, I often mention this. Um, when I was doing this this eight hour long talk with Ken about gun violence, we um, at the end of the call we're trying to come up with you know what are some sort of meta solutions here that would that would help reduce sort of the tensions that are be, being created in all of these different kind of aspects that are contributing to the problem. And the number one suggestion, Ken and I kind of surprised ourselves. Our our number one solution was reinstate the draft but make it a National Guard-like service that's You're mandatory. You're kidding. I, I thought I was the only person that thought this. No, and, and what the thing that we wow. really liked about the solution is it was equally conservative and progressive. It's mm -hmm. conservative because it's, it's getting down, okay, you want a healthy nationalism? You want mm -hmm. a healthy martial culture, which we by heritage are? This mm -hmm. is how you do it. It's a progressive solution because you're taking white kids, black kids, poor kids, rich kids, putting mm -hmm. them all together in service of something, and the idea is simply by exposing people to other perspectives in the service of something larger with than a shared I with a shared identity that's right that's a shared identity actually, yep that's going to fix that kind of broken piece so you of can't just body. have your individualized group identity and right. and minimize your national identity that's, that's right. interesting yep. all right and let's take some questions so these people can get off our call yeah so uh we have, a Q &A, we have a q a question um uh oh it's marshall asking um it would be nice to have someone with a center of gravity more on the right uh, or all integralists do, right? Well, let me just say, we're certainly not um, excluding conservatives. We're talking with anyone who wants to show up for this conversation. Um, so I, if you're more conservative minded and you want to participate in this conversation, all you got to do is raise your hand and we'll bring you on. Um, there's a question here from Eva that I think is worth paying attention to everybody. She's asking... Are there any recommendations on dealing with direct aggression as a minority right now in a safe way that opens minds? She says, there's so much aggression in the air from an integral perspective. I, she says she's in a very red rural area and it's really hard for her to understand the aggression that she's seen. So, Greg, do you have any advice or help um, for that? I, I'm presuming she's a person of color, I presume. Um, Do you want to bring her on? Eva, are you willing to come on for just a minute? Yeah, Eva, if you want to uh, come on and actually talk in real time. There we go. She raised her hand. Let me bring you over. Yeah, I'll okay. step back. Okay. Bye, okay. Mike. Hey, yeah, Michael, thanks so much, man. Did Mark have to go? Yeah, Mark yeah. had to bounce. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, Eva, we're coming on. Um, I'm not sure if you have a video. Oh, you do. Great. And now we just got to unmute you. There we go. Hi, Eva. Hey. <laughs> um, you know, I don't look like a minority, but I am, um, which just kind of brings like extra complexity to this. Um, I was born and raised in Guatemala, 
So I'm actually Guatemalan, so I'm Hispanic. But it's more complicated, I'm also French. Anyway, I'm in McCook, Nebraska, which is really, really, really red. I, we have some Hispanics here now, and we have some African-Americans here now. Um, I've been studying and practicing integral for since 2004, like pretty seriously, um, like devoted Buddhist, um, also into like Shakta Shaivism pretty seriously. Um, I'm a nurse and I work at a nursing home and um, a lot of the staff there are very, very red. They watch a lot of Fox News um, and I actually got targeted. I posted something about um, Trump just kind of making a mess of the world by speaking, just by saying almost anything really at this point. And uh, suddenly there were all these coworkers just pretty much looking at me in a totally different way. Um, mm -hmm. One of them actually sat me down at lunchtime and said, well, I know you're a Democrat and I have um, family members that are Democrat too, but I think Obama ruined this country. And the way that she expressed this to me was, was like so much anger and like violence in the way she was speaking to me. You know what I mean? Like there was just like this, like, she had, I, from one moment to the next, I no longer was human to her. Whereas, you know, we, I had established a great rapport with everybody. We all love serving our residents. It's a nursing home. So it's like, basically like the most vulnerable population with COVID right now. Yeah, I was gonna say you guys are under a lot of pressure. Yeah, and so all these people I love working with, and I honestly share so, so much in common with all these people who, who love, you know, who, who are red, in a more red, you know, uh, level of gravity. Um, and so I said to her once, actually, I'm socialist. <laughs> and she just kind of Oh, you did say that? You love that, I'm sure. She looked at me like, what on earth is that? Like, she didn't even know what to say at that point. <laughs> and I tried to, like, open my heart to her and, like, love her while I was speaking to her. And I just said, you know, I'll probably move to Europe at some point. You know, I don't, I don't think, you know, I'm okay with paying a lot of taxes and not having a lot. And we, we actually got into a conversation. Like, she just kind of kept throwing, like, the snippets at me and, like, she became very afraid of me. She, she, you know, that's why she was speaking to me in this way. And it came out that she was watching Fox News. And um, apparently she had seen that they were posting kill Republicans in, in Denver. And that had made her afraid of me. Mm -hmm. She thought I was out to get her, basically. Um, so I, I, like through this like 15 minute conversation, it just kind of became clear to her that like that was not the case. You know, I'm still the same person. Um, and she kind of had her mind open a little bit, you know, like, what is socialism anyways? And it actually, she was a little embarrassed by the end of the conversation because it came out that I would rather not have a lot but share with others. And she kind of basically said that she wouldn't. And she realized what she was saying as she said it to me. And she was like, that, that's kind of shitty. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like not a nice thing to say, actually. And it, somewhere in her, she was having this like cognitive dissonance because that's not really like the heartland values of small town McCook, Nebraska. Like here, mm -hmm. we like, it was a bunch of like Germans and like Icelandic people back in the day that like had nothing. And the only reason they survived was because they all got together and worked really hard. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what we do day in and day out, but I still come up against it. You know, now I'm kind of looked at differently because I posted that and, um, and there's a lot of racism here. Like um, oh, friends so I'm gonna let, let's let's hone in on this for just a minute just so we can get to a couple more people if that's okay with you Eva so Greg do you have something that you want to respond in terms of yeah. this challenge yeah I, I would Eva um, I would say that um, since you as they say let the cat out of the bag 
Rare, rare. Everything was okay before, you know. So that uh, it's, it's really difficult because what happens is you don't get looked at by some as an individual anymore, as Eva, who I had this you know, relationship or communication. You are looked at as a certain kind of other. You are looked at as, oh, she's on the left. She's an anti-Trump and she's a socialist. Oh my God, socialist. So... <laughs> Although that pleases her, she likes she likes. Oh yeah, you you, you want to zing? <laughs> it's just the truth. It hit home. Yeah, yeah. So so the thing is, I really think that that anecdote that you gave is key. You had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone who didn't understand, who opened up. You listened. She listened. She is it she or he? She. Okay, she listened. And though she still may be a little suspicious of you, you, it broke down some of those barriers. So I would say that, you know, two things. One, on a one-to-one -one basis that you can reestablish the connectivity that you had. And then, and this is, this is my fallback on certain things, there are commonalities that you share with those people. Mm -hmm. So emphasize the commonalities. And it could be commonalities on surface things, or it could be deep commonalities, you know, foods, you know, music, uh, likes and dislikes on certain other things other than politics. Taking care of old people Taking in a pandemic. Care, hello. And so if you open up your heart to them, particularly individually, because it's really hard to, if you're talking to like 10 of them, then you got kind of like, you know, what Mark was talking about, you know, mob behavior. But if you're dealing one-on-one -on -one with someone who is willing to listen and be listened to, there's ways you can, you can really get through. So that's, that's what I would, I would recommend, you know, focus on the commonalities and just, you know, it takes courage, it takes bravery, you know, and maybe you want to keep certain views from here on to yourself to not further you know, uh, raise up the red in them. I mean, I, that's just real because you're in a situation where you're surrounded by that. So no, you're I'm afraid. I was very afraid. Yeah. So yeah, take care of yourself a little that's bit. Right. You're in the this ain't you know this is real. So this is not about you. I am going to express my point of view. No, I don't think so. You've already done that. You know what you feel and believe, but you don't have to like. Uh, 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 poke at the tiger, you know, that's what I mean. And also just to add on to what Greg's saying, even it depends. Cause what I heard you also say is that, is that she came at you in a way that automatically your nervous system is going to move into fight and flight. Cause we're so sensitive to aggression, right? So you're dripping cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine and your nervous system is aroused. The fact that you're able to hang in there is quite an accomplishment, but keep in mind that listening will always soothe your system and the system of the other person. So when you're practiced at it, you could say to her, oh, so what I'm hearing you say is that for you, President Obama was actually detrimental to this country. You feel super strongly about that. You're really passionate in your views. It seems like maybe you're concerned about what I really think about that. But I, 
I just want to make sure you, you, you know, that you can feel that I hear you. That's kind of an advanced practice. We think of listening as like really, you know, communications 101. But when our nervous system is aroused and defensive, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. But you can get to a place where you start with that and you really, really listen. And then you say, now, are you, are you open to hearing just a couple of things where you and I might be different? And one is that I think my experience of you in this moment, working in this place, is much more real than what I hear about you on MSNBC. And I really enjoy being with you and working together. Like you can privilege your experience first. So those are some things to think about. We just wrote a book called Compassionate Conversations with Gabe Wilson, my co-author, and Kim Lowe. And there's lots of practices and techniques in there that could support you. Thank you. You're welcome. You we have time for one more, Corey? Yeah, so uh, if anyone has a question, let us know. Um, Lewis Cohen has posted this one twice to because uh, he posted it to all the panelists. It's to Greg. He says uh, he's repeating. Do you want to read it, Corey? Um, Can you yeah, see Lewis's comments? Let me, uh, let me find it here one sec. Here you go. I'm repeating my comment. I agree with what Greg shared about what Mr. Smith of wealth shared. I'm shocked that this has not occurred years past. Possibly it has. I believe it is management and not enough mentoring that has not taken place. Greg, it seems that you centered for a moment on a class economically disadvantaged group who are suffering now and have been. Please do not take me incorrectly. I ask, have you entered into the fray, go into communities that need assistance on a regular basis, and do you help bring light to those communities? Do you think racism is centered towards a small group of black people and the effect is to all black people and those black people or any economically disadvantaged that you describe needing assistance? I'm humble to what you are saying. Thank you in my heartfelt way. Okay. Um, you wanna bring Lewis in? Does Lewis wanna come on? Uh, Lewis, if you want to uh, talk in real time, Press the raise my hand button. Yeah. So. Um, otherwise, uh, Greg, I'll give you. Oh, there okay. We go. Hang is on a sec. He, is yep. he coming on? Yeah, he's coming on. Hang on a sec. Okay. Thanks, Corey. All right. Hey, okay. Lewis. Hi, and uh, good to meet you. First, Hi, Lewis. First, I want to share. I'm learning a lot. Please excuse the way I'm dressed. I went out to talk to somebody going back a few days ago, and for some reason I came back, maybe catching a cold. So I had a chill last night, and I've been wearing my sweatshirt throughout the day. That's all right. Wearing a black hoodie is appropriate for this topic. Yeah, you look super urban. <laughs> That's all right. So, so Louis, if I can, uh, I'm so glad you, thank you for asking the question and uh, being here and joining us and as with everyone who's actually been with us and staying with us. Thank you so much. So a couple of things, you asked, you know, several things in there. Um, one, in terms of my own work, um, I mean, I have some young people I mentor. Um, I consider my role as a father, you know, Father's Day was recently. I have a wonderful daughter who I think is uh, exemplary millennial, who I'm proud, you know, that she is a, a very strong, smart, beautiful, brilliant, uh, contributing member of our society. So, so there's that. I think that needs to be acknowledged. Um, and what I do is not so much like going and doing like what I think I feel is more like on kind of like social work 
that kind of thing. I, I don't do that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a writer. So I frame issues, questions. I try to bring insights through my writing that people can get perspective and some insight from and through. Um, I'm an intellectual, so I frame issues. I try to define issues with clarity, subtlety, nuance, and some sophistication to show people really, you know, different ways of looking at things in a more holistic way uh, and framing things in that way. So I, I take that role very, and I'm also an entrepreneur. So I actually try to bring value to the world and to the marketplace in this case, through my company, the Jazz Leadership Project, uh, where we work with individuals and, and organizations primarily and teams to help them through jazz principles and practice to be better self-leaders, to be better leaders of others, and to interact and work better together. Okay, so that, that goes beyond race. I mean, you know, we've done workshops with some of everybody. So that's, that's on that front. Um, in terms of the race or racism question um i'm not quite sure what you're asking are you asking do i feel that racism impacts all black people or just a group of black people is that what you were trying to get at i was trying to get at i felt that you had mentioned that there is a center let's look at a big circle mm -hmm. bring big circle into little circles to get to a another center, which mm -hmm. is smaller. And apparently that smaller center is having the greater difficulty, the greater problem economically, as I believe you mentioned, disadvantaged and mm -hmm. other problems. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm feeling somewhat, not, not about you, you, that some of what might be called racism uh, is centering on a smaller group of people and it's affecting the larger group. Now, am I explaining myself? Well, yeah, he's, ba he's basically saying like that, that the, maybe the black community in the inner city um, might be, who are more economically disadvantaged, maybe there are more higher rates of crime, more drug maybe they don't, more drug abuse, and maybe that, that somehow the experience with that particular group of black people is affecting the experience of all black people or, expecting the per, or, or affecting the perception of people outside the black community. Is that right? Yes. Okay. That's, very well, that's, very well, that's very well put. I mean, I'll it's give very you- very well put by Diane, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I appreciate that. And, and, and here is why, and I respect, I believe communication is the common denominator for whatever we do. And it's how we communicate. It's our nonverbal perception and also the verbal perception. But I share, share I'm, I'm, I'm hurt by what is going on to communities, to people of race, to many people. And I use experience. I spent seven years as a New York City police officer. I walked the beat for two years working with people. I listened to other police officers talk with bias. And I'm not afraid to ask people why they say what they say. Personally, why is that? 
I'm also retired from the military. I spent years in Vietnam. I spent a, a little less than a year in Vietnam in 67, 68. And I came back looking at the word peace, that people have to interrelate, listen to each other, learn about each other to create a, a safer society and a safer society. So I pose that to you because I wonder why people don't step up. I'm not talking about you now, please. Don't step up so much. And when you heard, I heard what you said about Mr. Smith and the 2%. I said, gee, that's terrific. And I know Mr. Gates and other people have donated money into different areas too and are helping. But why can't we find a way to really, really help people? Okay, so let me, let me answer you. Um, that same gentleman, Robert F. Smith, engaged in a conversation with Reverend Dr. James Forbes, former um, senior minister of the Riverside Church, last Friday during the, a Juneteenth celebration that was um, webcast on Carnegie Hall's site. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in that conversation, Dr. Forbes said, well, what can people do? And Robert Smith said, you do what you can where you are. If what you can do is care for someone's child or their elder, do that. Do what you can where you are. Now, he says, I'm, I'm talking to heads of states and heads of and CEOs of corporation. So that's where I address. So that's what we can do. We can do what we can where we are. Now, let me say this. Most people, and this is why this confluence of COVID and the economic collapse and the uprisings, it's just incredible. It's like an, it, it, there was an internalization that went on and then a bam, it just came out. The people had to look within in terms of like, how am I dealing with my life? Most of the time when they talk about the normal, the old normal, people were just busy with their lives, man. You know what I mean? People have their own struggles, their own difficulties, their own aspirations. And people have a, you know, pr a pretty low bandwidth in terms of what they can actually engage with for the most part outside of the sphere of their own lives. That's just real. I mean, some of these issues, I mean, I've studied race and culture. I've studied this for decades. A lot of people have not, and you, and I, you can't necessarily expect that. But now that we have this moment where people are actually asking, what can I do? What should I do? It's a fantastic opportunity for people to step up, not just for those black folks, but to increase their empathy overall, to become better listeners. You're talking about communication, Lewis. This is a grand opportunity for us. That's why when you talk about some of the dangers of the left and the, and the activism based on identity politics, these are very real issues and dangers because what happens is if you, I use this example, and I said this before, I've been saying this for like the last two years with regard to the uh, you know, identity politics and, and activists. 
if I get in your face and I am yelling at you, what's the likelihood that you're going to receive me and listen to me well? What's the likelihood that you're going to actually change my mind if you're yelling me and calling me names in my face? I mean, I mean, this is like one-on-one. This is like kindergarten, you know? Respect others. Speak to others as you want to be spoken to. I mean, you know, this is some basic stuff here. So, but if we could increase our listening skills, our communication skills, to have more compassionate conversations, we will be the better for it, not just in terms of one group, as an entire culture and society. So let's, let's not lose this opportunity because COVID is still out here. Most of us are still at home. We still have this internalized thing happening. So self-reflection is something that if we engage in it and we will engage in inquiry to self, ask ourselves these questions, we can get answers and then engage in other people in a better way. And that's, that's what I'm hoping we do, Lewis. Greg, I thank you for the way you replied. Uh, I've learned from that. And yes, the 1960s with Vietnam and people talking about that and et cetera, it caused people to awaken and speak out. And even during the civil rights, people awakened. And I think that that is what is occurring right now. So I appreciate what you're saying and I will reflect on it at the end. Take care. Mm-hmm. Lewis, thank you so much. Thank and thanks you for so your much. service, Lewis. Yeah. That's right. Those were, that, was, that was a great- Both as law, law enforcement and in the military. Yeah, no, that was that was that was really great. Um, and guys, uh, it's it's three thirty now. I think we want to start wrapping things up, but we do have one more question that was submitted that I think is actually a nice opportunity for us to make some kind of closing remarks. Um, so maybe we can kind of weave that in. So Marshall asks, uh, do you see a relationship between the rhetoric and the tactics on the left and the growth of racism and white nationalism on the on the right? And I guess part of my closing comment here would be. Um, I, I actually don't know if that's true. I sort of align with, um, you know, Will Smith uh, a couple of months ago said something that was a little bit more controversial than I thought it would be, which was that mm-hmm. racism isn't getting worse. It's getting videotaped. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is, um, I talked about this when uh, I did a show with Ryan Olkey and Justin Miles a couple of weeks ago. I think that is a tremendously encouraging kind of sentiment that the problem is not getting worse. It's getting more videotaped. It's getting more exposure. So the inertias that we've had after generations and generations of discrimination and racism and segregation and what have you, um, yeah, that inertia is still here. And we're starting to see more and more evidence that those inertias are still sort of being held in our culture. Um, However, this is an opportunity because it's all coming to the surface right? It's no longer sort of being hidden underneath this scab tissue of political correctness. So we're actually engaging it now. And this is now the, the opportunity for us to begin to have exactly the sort of conversations that Eva was able to have, that Dave Chappelle talks about having, um, that w- when we're able to have these kind of one-on-one humanizing conversations that actually uplift our circle of care, widen our circle of care rather than narrowing it. Um, I think that this is sort of the opportunity of our time, and it's all the more reason why I personally feel very grateful that so much of this is being documented. Um, and even if it creates chaos in the meantime, I believe something worthwhile is emerging from all of this. So let me say 
to Marshall that uh, I hear you, man. I feel what you're saying because, and it's not that I disagree with uh, what Corey said, but I will say that when you have, it's like each, what do you say, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Like this is a scientific principle. So I would say that, uh, you know, there's a horseshoe theory of political engagement. So if you look at the horseshoe like this, let me see, like that, right? And you have the extremes of political groupings, they actually get closer together, mm -hmm. the more extreme they are. So I do think that the, the tactics, the communication style, the uh, lack of nu nuance, I think all of that, that's true on certain aspects of the left that's there. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is, frankly, in terms of the cycles of American history, whenever there was an advance in civil rights or you're expanding your uh, sphere of care and concern, there's always a backlash, mm -hmm. one way or the other. So I would have to say, yes, Marshall, now, I'm not gonna blame the left for the folks on the right who thought that and felt that anyway. They thought that and felt that back during the civil rights movement when it was more of a nonviolent, dignified, all of those elements. So uh, I'm not gonna blame them for that, but I do think there's that type of, um, that type of polarity dynamics that does happen. Yeah, so I think we have to recognize that, which is one of the reasons why I've taken, and I'm gonna develop this idea of uh, being a radical moderate, you know? I, I, <laughs> I, um, I, I, there's certain things on the right that I agree with, certain things on the left I agree with, but I wanna use a term that, um, oh, what's his name, Peter Lindbergh, he came up with called mimetic mediation. I really feel that the facilitation work that Diane does and that I you know, studied with her, we, if we have this understanding of different meme stacks and levels, however you construct that into whatever system you do, and we wanna engage in a way of curating conversations and engaging in mediating conversations, we're engaging in mimetic mediation. And to do that, to do that skillfully, we have to understand these dynamics. And I put myself more in the center so I, I have the ability to talk with the, the spectrum on the, even the extremes. Now, I'll end with this. You're speaking of extremes, this book here, mm. this guy here, this black man was able to go into the Klan and through human communication and through music he was able to reach these people and get them to, some of them, to put down their robes, take off their robes. He helped these people up level and evolve to another level. And that was done through his love, his compassion, his patience, his listening, his caring. So this is the work that ultimately we gotta get to um, once we you know, deal with all the anger and things that rise up during movements and all the different dynamics with that, I would suggest that folks read Dostoevsky, read Dostoevsky's 
uh, the possessed, also called the demons. And you will actually, in that 19th century book by one of the master novelists of the 19th century, Russian novelist Dostoevsky, Fyodor, you will see the dynamics that are happening now happens when there's political passions that are inflamed. So to understand that, I would suggest that, and then let's strive to be facilitators and, and mediators of conversations between people so that we can up-level and move beyond just being involved in the polarities. Yes, beautifully said. I would say just a couple of additional things that I think that we can think about the left and the right as the preserving and innovating functions of evolution and that creativity always involves these poles and the universe actually works that way. It preserves, Ken always talks about it has to be preserved in all four quadrants and then there's this, these emergence and when these emergence have impact and get, and, take a hold, they have influence, and then the whole thing is kind of moving together. I think Trump is a terrible outcome of this process. I think that uh, my nephew, who is, um, and I think that the, rate, the divisiveness and the anti-immigration stance and just the increase of, of this sort of emboldening, the emboldenment mm -hmm. of people's racist attitudes like there's something about just some healthy shame to help people quit doing that on the other hand um my nephew is is one of those people who's an um kind of a casualty of the opioid crisis in this country he's white he's super handsome he looks like um cristiano um who's the soccer player ronaldo he's handsome like he is he's beautiful but he has an opioid addiction and I helped him with the help of the justice system, get into drug court and get clean and get a job. And then he went to community college and uh, took a class on film and was shamed in that class for being a white male so consistently that he just absolutely dropped out and will never go back again. Wow. That's a terrible outcome. Yep. So Trump is a terrible outcome of the right. And that is a terrible outcome on the left. Yeah. And so I, I feel that, what Greg and Corey are saying is that we have to understand these dynamics. We have to, in a certain way, understand why they're there and how they work. And at the same time, it's really important for us to take a strong stand around what, how we uphold and support and we get outcomes that are measurable so that people of color feel that they're getting that our hiring practices are changing, that we're seeing differences in the bottom line, that we actually can measure improvement in, in terms of people's standard of living, that healthcare is actually not hitting, that, that everybody has access to healthcare. We want those measurables. And at the same time, this just absolute commitment to human dignity and commitment to the, to the care and to the well-being of each other, that that's where we need to be. And that's why I'm in this particular conversation. So thank you, everybody, for being here with us. We're going to continue. And thank you so much, everybody, for listening and for joining us. And Corey, for hosting us as usual. As I say, you, you always blow my mind. And Greg, thank you for being such a, a powerful and moving heart. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, All right. you both. Well, I'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, Di. 
Thank you, All dear. Right, sorry. Okay. All right, everyone. Bye. 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 Thanks so much. Bye.